or they are one of those people. Um, and uh, my wife has to live with me. Um, she deserved a break this morning, so she's not here this morning because um, uh, I'm going to talk about her. Um, no. In, in a very good way. In a very good way. You know, last night I, I mentioned uh, that Jesus has a body. Um, and if you'll open your, um, your conference manual, we, we are going to continue to move forward. Don't you love that Nathan told you last night that all the answers are on the back in the key? So for those of you that it drives you insane when you have a blank that's not filled in, you can fill in all your blanks. Um, we're going we're gonna to talk this morning about you. <laughs> we're not just going to talk about my wife or me. We're going to talk about you. We're going to talk about your unique ministry. When it looks like you, it doesn't look like anybody but you because you were fearfully, wonderfully made by a master creator who doesn't create clones, copies, or dittos. He makes one-of-a-kind, original masterpieces. And whether that's the way you think about yourself or not, that's the way he thinks about you. And it's time for us as his body to live into the fullness of his intention for us. Let's do a quick review. Um, Jesus kept everywhere he went seeing and stopping and spending time with and as he kept doing that everywhere he went the needs were the same they were just different people with different names and different needs but it was the need to have somebody who was willing willing to get up close even though they were strangers get up close in the mainstreams where they were because they weren't people who... You don't find a lot of his stories happening behind four walls at the synagogue. It was out where the people were at, so up close in the mainstreams. And what you see is that he brought high value, high value. Let me reintroduce you to a very significant number. One. You're one, and you're very important. And he demonstrated the high value of each life Lives that had forever felt overlooked or undervalued. But Jesus would see them, and he'd stop, and he'd spend time. Well, we talked about your ministry definition last night. What's, what's ministry? And, and for some people, uh, they don't understand that God has uniquely, let's go to our outline, God has uniquely designed every person. I would circle the word every He's uniquely designed every person with a ministry purpose in mind. Now, some of us are already thinking, yeah, not me. I beg to differ. He's got a world he loves. And when he was fashioning and creating your uniqueness, he knew that if he would make you this certain way and and throw this into the recipe and give you this passion and this hobby and this interest and this ability, you would get among people that I don't get among. You'd get up close to people that I don't know how to get up close to. And his desire, a little bit like salt 
You know, the idea is that we're the salt of the earth, and, and you know it's an awful thing if you ever pick up a salt shaker. I don't know if it's ever happened to you, and the lid's off and all the salt drops in one spot on your food item. That's not the way you want it. You want to spread that salt out and around. And that was the whole goal of God the Creator. He wanted to spread us out, and He knew if He gave us different talents, different abilities, different uniquenesses, He could spread the salt. We're the salt of the, the earth. Spread the salt out. What does salt do? Mmm. Yes. It adds flavor. Adds flavor. It gets you salivating. It makes you hungry. Um, uh, salt is a wonderful thing. Makes you even thirsty. And Jesus is the living water. Sometimes you get near a person and your life literally makes them thirsty. They don't even know yet what they're thirsty for, that the one housed in you who's Jesus, the living water, that when you're near them, just every time you're near them, they, they're trying to figure it out. They get thirsty. Well, you know, you're the one who knows where the living water is. Well, God's uniquely designed every person with a ministry purpose in mind. A lot of you brought your Bibles, so I'm going to ask you to open up to Ephesians 4, and you've got electronic Bibles, you can pull those out on your phone. I want you to get to Ephesians 4, because I want you to know this isn't my idea. Everything that's coming to you is straight out of the Scriptures. This is, this is His idea. We're pushing rewind and going back to the original plan. And His plan is not plan K or plan M or plan even C. His plan for me is plan A. And for me, there is no other plan. And, and by the way, he doesn't have a plan B. He's got one plan, and, and it involves us. It involves you. If you're in Ephesians 4, let's, let's mess around, move around a little bit in this to help you get to a fresh new definition of who's a minister, who's capable of being one, and your unique ministry. It tells us that, that we've been brought into a life um, uh, in verse 1. It, it, that's, it's a wonderful thing. You've got a calling. tells you to be completely humble because it's not about us. It's about Him. Uh, to be patient, bear with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace because we're all different. There's one body. There's one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. And one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Oh, look at all this oneness stuff. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now here it starts getting exciting. Verse 7 of chapter 4, Ephesians 4, 7. But to a few special people, no, it doesn't say that, does it? you got to keep checking on me. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Let's go down to verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. That's some. But you know that you've already read in verse 7, to each one of us grace has been given. So if that was only given to some, why did he only give that to some? Because he needed those people to equip all the people. Look at verse 12. Their job, my job, I, he's called me to equip you. 
I'm a laborer the best I know how, but as I told you last night, every time somebody finds out I'm a clergyman or a minister or I'm ordained, it's like they freak out and panic, and I'm not kidding you. Eventually, I can almost see them sociologically stepping back from me because they're not comfortable around me. I tell one of those stories in the Plan A book because you get better opportunity. I'm supposed to be able to try to continue to be a laborer. Like when I walk in one of my favorite restaurants, Lazy Dog, the servers, they don't know what I do for a living. They just know they like me and I like them and I pray for them. And, and so they all know me. There's Joe and there's Mason and, and there's Sean. And Sean wants to introduce me to his new girlfriend, Shelby. And here's a picture of Sean's dog. And these, that's my neighborhood. That's my restaurant. Those are my peeps. I love those people. And, and the manager is always paying for my meal because he said, I just love the way you're loving my people. What he doesn't know is I've had people that I've loved in restaurants who eventually, this is my new restaurant, that people that, that have, I've actually become their clergyman. I've become the person who, who officiated their wedding in my house. I mean, there, there are people who I, I drove past one of their houses today on my way from the east side to the west side. Where did I meet them? I met them at Famous Dave Barbecue. They're here. They're there. They're everywhere. But, but my job is to equip you to prepare God's people. That's who you are. You're God's people. For and I loved your definition of laborship last night. What's a labor? You know, Nick, you even said they work, they get things done, you know, they they act it out, they they get it done. That, well, look at this. To prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What are works of service? I'd call it laborship. I wouldn't call it leadership because sometimes we get down and we do things that others maybe wouldn't do, like when Jesus set an example, showed the full extent of his love, and he washed their feet in the room because they all had feet that needed washed and there wasn't any servant that was going to do it. It's sort of like setting up the chairs or helping them shovel their walk too or helping them with their kids along with your kids. All these different things we do that Jesus says, you know, I'm setting an example for you attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Speaking the truth in love, verse 15, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head connected with his body from whom the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Let's go back to our outline. I said it earlier, but in case you missed it, letter A, there are no clones or copies. You're a one-of-a-kind original. Psalm 139 tells us you're fearfully, wonderfully made. You're an original, handcrafted, personally signatured masterpiece. Letter B, love this. God has designed you with a ministry purpose in mind. He's designed you for planning employment. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to 
Exercise a life of kingdom laborship to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's not the, we don't earn our salvation. That's not what this is about. We get a chance to be a part of God's love in action on the planet. We get a chance to be brokers who help people connect with God up close in the mainstreams of life, one life at a time. We get this incredible privilege. Well, I told you I was going to tell you a little bit about my wife. When I first met my wife, I was a single pastor, and I was so excited that God had created someone like her. Oh, my word. Like, I'd waited my whole life for this gal. I was so excited. I, I, like, I, I, was, I was getting to know her and doing the dating thing off to the side because I wasn't sure I was ready to put her through the church inspection. Because I knew a few of the ladies at the church, and I, I kind of had an idea what might happen. So, so I, I made sure that this, this really is beginning to feel like the one. So, so I brought Dawn to church, and, and sure enough, three of our best ladies, older ladies, pulled me aside over in the corner. And he said, Pastor Dwight, she's very pretty. We have a few questions for you. The first lady said, does she play the piano? <laughs> I said, I don't know. I don't think so. Why is that important? Well, you know, it's always important for the pastor to have somebody who can play the piano. I didn't know that. I wasn't sure that was actually true. The next lady said, well, if she can't play the piano, I have a question for you. Can she sing? You said it. You knew that was the next question. Can she sing? Like she could sing before you preach. And, you know, that would be a really good thing if she could sing. And I said, I don't. I mean, she made it pretty clear she sings in the shower. That's kind of it. I heard that lady go, oh. Just like the first lady had gone, oh, when I told her that she didn't play the piano. So the third lady, she was, she was encouraging. She was such a wonderful little lady. And she said, well, it's okay that she can't play the piano or sing, but I bet she's a wonderful public speaker, and she could speak to the ladies' groups, and she could actually duo with you and speak up front. And I said, no, 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 my wife has made it very clear she's not an upfront person. She doesn't want to be the upfront speaker. All three of them simultaneously, oh. It was like, we have a problem. Well, what they didn't know was that um, my wife has many other unique talents and abilities, extraordinarily so. But as I was traveling and we were married and she would travel with me on occasion, um, there was a little pressure she felt. People wanted to kind of put her in a box that was their box that they thought was what was ministry. We showed up at a large convention in the Midwest where I was the, the keynote speaker, and we went through a fast VIP line to get to our room so we could get our stuff settled before I had to speak, and I heard her gasping for air on the other side of the room. <gasps> and she, as I turned to see what was going on, she's pointing at the program for the conference. And I said, what, what, what? 
And she's just, she's, she can't even speak. She's just pointing. And there's her name to speak to all the conference women the next day. She, I, I don't know what you would do. She was just, I, her hand was shaking looking at it and pointing. And I said, honey, I don't know how that happened. I had nothing to do with that, but I will get you out of that. You don't worry. I will protect you. That doesn't need to happen. I, she said, look, they put my name on the program. Like, it's gonna, they're going to think I don't love God or I don't love them or I don't want to be with them. You know, this is a problem. I don't know what to do. Finally, she surmised that maybe what she needed to do was try. So she stayed up all night trying to prepare and trying to get ready. She was shaking in the morning. I prayed over her, and, and because it was all the ladies, I couldn't go. So I said, honey, I want you to see. And I, I went over to the side of the room, and I said, I'm getting down on my knees. I'm going to stay on my knees. You pray for me all the time. I'll be praying for you while you go speak to all those ladies. I'll stay right here, and I won't get off my knees until you walk back through that door. An hour and a half later, she came back through the door. I couldn't wait to get off my knees. <laughs> so, honey, how'd it go? She said, well, I knew I couldn't speak before I left. Now they know I can't speak, and I hope they tell the entire world that your wife is not a public speaker. We were able to finally get to the point where we were laughing about it and... Uh, it was after that trip, and we had just had our daughter, that she sat in her kitchen and said, God, I'm not, I'm not a public speaker, but you know I love you and I love other people. What's ministry that looks like me? And she realized that since she was a little girl, her mother had, had worked fastidiously to teach she and her two sisters how to bake, how to cook, how to sew, how to do all these kinds of things. She was in something called 4-H, if you're familiar with that. And she competed and won prizes and contests. And, and um, she thought, I wonder if this could be a, a ministry that looks like me. Because, listen, my ministry center is my kitchen. And she was baking every day, and I was, I was taking it on. In my young days, it was like, oh, my word, I'm growing, and not in the right ways, in the right directions. And I'd try to take it to work, and I'd try to share it, because she loved to bake every day. She sat there in her kitchen and thought, God, did you make me this way with a ministry purpose in mind? I got home that night, and she had written 10 invitations out, she had them propped on our kitchen table, and she told me what it was about. She said, tomorrow, I'm going to take our daughter, and I'm going to walk the neighborhood. Uh, most of us don't know who each other are. We wave kind of cordially, but we don't really know who each other are. So she went door to door the next day, and um, she said, I'm, I'm Dawn Roberts, and I live in that house, like five, five houses down. This is my daughter. Um, I bake every day. I love to bake. I'm kind of good at it. And, and I decided Saturday I'm going to have my dining room table full of baked goods. Um, some of them are prize winning. And I just I, I thought maybe as neighborhood women, if we gathered together, we could learn who each other are in case we have issues or problems or we need each other. We, we could learn who each other are. And, um, and so 2 o'clock Saturday uh, at my house, um, and uh, it's, it's the one five doors down. Many of them didn't know each other in the neighborhood. That Saturday, a little after our lunch, she said, honey, would you, would you put your hands on me in our kitchen? 
this is my ministry center, and would you pray for me and my ministry today? She said, I'm excited and I'm nervous, but I want to know that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but I just need a little extra, like, prayer. Would you put your hands on me and just pray for me like, like we prayed for James the Roofer, like we pray for people who have unique ministries that look like them? So I remember exactly where I was, near the doorway of the kitchen, and put my hands on my wife. It was kind of emotional for me because she'd prayed over me so many times before I spoke, and now I'm praying over her in her kitchen. She told me to take our daughter and uh, be gone for an hour and a half. So I took our daughter and left for an hour and a half. All the ladies came, all 10 of them. I came back in an hour and a half, and all 10 of them were still there. I called my wife to the kitchen like, they're all here still. She said, listen to them. They're having such a great time. Like, like um, here, here's a Barney video. Just put this in for our daughter. That'll entertain her for another half hour. And, and I'm sure in a half hour, they'll, they'll, they'll be gone. Well, the half hour video went, and I tried another video, and an hour has gone by. I, I called a little powwow in the kitchen again and said, honey, look, it's, it's 4.30 in the afternoon. Um, I think it's, it's getting time. It's been two and a half hours. She said, honey, listen to them. They're having such a great time. And, and look at the dining room table like the baked goods are here. They keep going back and getting baked goods and talking. And By 6 p.m., I called my wife into the kitchen and said, honey, they got to go. Um, I'm done. I'm so done. Four hours and like, I'm like you know, it's, it's time. And she kind of chuckled and she, she went back in the room and she said, ladies, I don't know if anybody's expecting you at home or maybe worried about what dinner or, or you or, but, but it's six o'clock at night and, and I just want you to know that I bake all the time. So, so I decided before you came, if we had a good time um, on Saturdays, I, I would have our dining room table uh, full of baked goods and, and uh, tea, coffee, beverages. And, and actually I've got a book we could go through on, on how to become better wives and better mothers. Um, and uh, nine out of the ten began coming back on a regular basis. One woman began to put her marriage back together. Another woman began to take her children and go to church, something she hadn't done since she was a very small girl herself. But then I remember the night specifically when Amber, the woman who lived catacorner from her house, showed up at after 10 p.m. We had just gotten back from the hospital. My wife had had a miscarriage. It had been a very difficult emotional day for us. My wife was upstairs in the bedroom, and she said, who could that be? And I said, I don't know. I wonder if somebody's heard what we've been doing today at the hospital. I opened the door, and there stood Amber, holding baked goods in her hands. They didn't look nearly as good as my wife's. Um, but she was trying. I had to give her credit. She was trying. She said, I heard about what happened, and I made some, <laughs> I made some things. Suddenly, she is crying so loudly that I'm pretty sure other neighbors are going to be looking at what in the world is going on on our porch step. I said, Amber, and you remember I told you last night I get nervous when women really, really, really cry. I don't know exactly what to do. And I said, Amber, come, come in and have a seat. You know, I'm thinking, let's not get the whole neighborhood up. Have a seat. I don't know why she's crying so profusely. And I went upstairs and I said, honey, Amber's downstairs. She brought us baked goods. They don't look very good, but, they're, but she, she's, she's feel, she heard what happened. And listen, um, uh, she's crying. That's her crying. Do you hear her? My wife put on a robe, and she said, I'll, I'll go down. She went down, and as she sat down with Amber, and I went upstairs, and I just 
I took a knee and prayed. I didn't know what in the world was going on. But what happened in the next hour was Amber unveiled a dark, long-term secret of her life that went to such deep gravitas places in her that she had never told anyone. And suddenly my wife was hearing this dark secret and sitting with her in our living room into the wee hours of the morning until finally they were praying together. When my wife came upstairs, I said, honey, you need to know there's not a clergyman or a missionary on the planet who would have had the ministry you just had with Amber tonight. You baked your way into her heart from your kitchen and you loved your way into her life. She began to trust you. And even today, the hardest thing that's ever happened to you, this miscarriage, became a common ground avenue for her to share a dark part of her life. And you were her minister tonight. I could never have done what you did. And no one else could have either. It was ministry that looks like you. What does it mean when we begin to discover where God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance? Well, where does it happen? You know, God wants to employ your whole life. He wants to employ your whole life for his ministry purposes. What might that look like if everything about your life became employable? Well, let me tell you something about God. He's wildly creative. He's entrepreneurial. Anybody look at the west sky this morning? No, you, you don't live in the east. You didn't look at the west sky. You probably looked at the eastern sky. I looked at the eastern sky, too, before I left the far east uh, where I live in this city. And it was totally different this morning than it was yesterday morning. And the west sky was completely different than it's been for quite a while. I don't know what kind of weather's rolling in, but it looked, it looked amazing. God is entrepreneurial and unique, and he has never made someone exactly like you before, but what he tucks in are passions and abilities. In fact, let's talk about this, this God who is wildly entrepreneurial and distinct in his creation. Let's talk about his ability to employ, letter A, to employ your talents and spiritual gifts. Your talents and your spiritual gifts. What might that look like? I remember Ryan, one of our young adult students, there's a bunch of flyers on the back table, and Ryan was a young adult. We have young adult training programs, teen training programs, multi-generational training programs in the summer months, um, from deep camp to something called the experience, something called surge. We've got firebrand speaker training program. We've just been wanting to equip whoever in whatever stage of life they are. Ryan said to me, Dwight, I mean, I told him about my wife's story about cooking, and he said, I, I don't know how to cook but I'm really good with basketball. My whole life, like he said, I, my mom says I kind of came out playing basketball. She, she tells me when I was little, you know, it was all about bad ball, bad ball, bad ball. And he said, my whole life I've been passionate about basketball. I can tell you everything and anything about basketball, and I'm really good at it. Do you think that's employable by God? I said, well, Ryan, God made you the way you are. Let's pray about it. He gave his passion for basketball to God. He went back to his community in South Carolina, and he discovered that there were kids at his local park who loved to go down there and hang out because they didn't have a good home life, and they wanted to play basketball. His common denominator wasn't that his life was like them or his skin color was like them or anything about his life was like them other than their common denominator passion for basketball. 
And Ryan knew how to play. He began to teach them some fundamentals that they hadn't learned from anybody else. He began to work with them. The next thing he knew, when they were taking water breaks, sitting and talking, he was able to talk about something he was even more passionate about than basketball, and that was Jesus. He said, Dwight, I'm not kidding. Within a matter of months, two of the boys gave their hearts to Jesus, and then I was trying to figure out things to plug them into, and I, I learned about this ministry called Upward Basketball, that, that has these programs through local churches and local communities. So I found one, and I signed on to help coach to get these two boys in, and he said, the next thing I knew, they had other parts that they were working, wondered if I would volunteer and help. I started volunteering and helping, and eventually he wrote to me and said, they, they want me to come on staff with them and do basketball clinics across the nation. We're going from community to community doing basketball clinics and parks. By the end of the year, Ryan reached out and said, Dwight, you're never going to believe this. Um, all I've been doing is what I love to do, loving Jesus with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving whoever the people are that God's putting on basketball courts with me. And this past year, through our ministry, through Upward Basketball, we've seen over 1,000 kids come to Jesus. Because Ryan's passionate, not about cooking, about basketball. I had one young woman who was in our young adult program. She was from Western New York. She said, um, like, when you talk about talents and spiritual gifts, like, I don't have any. I said, I'm sorry, what? She said, I don't have any talents or special gifts. There's nothing special about me. She's a really quiet, kind of humble gal. Um, she would always sit toward the back of the room. And I said, well, Leslie, I, I don't think that can be true. I mean, you're made by God. Um, when you were in high school, like everybody like writes in high school yearbooks, what, what did they write in your yearbook like about you? Oh, they all, everybody always told me I had a great smile. I said, well, as a matter of fact, you do. Actually, as a public speaker, whenever I'm in a group of people, like I'll, I'll tell you, I know who the people are in this room already. I always look for who are the people who are smiling at me because that's what kind of refuels and it gives me energy. And, and Leslie, uh, like I look for who's smiling and and I'm always, I turn back to you because you keep me fueled because you're always smiling at me. You do. You have a winsome smile. She kind of looked down and she said, well, it's actually what makes money for me because I'm a waitress in Western New York. And when I walk up to a table, I never start talking first. I always walk up to the table and I smile at them. She said it just kind of unnerves them, and they look at me, and, and, and I kind of smile back at them, and I kind of let this pause kind of linger, you know, and soon they're smiling, and then I say, so are you hungry? Uh, and then she said, and then I just start walking into my whole routine, but she said, I always start with a smile. And she said, that is what they wrote in my high school yearbook. Do you, I mean, do you think God could use that? And I said, well, Leslie, I don't know, but let's pray about it. So I remember she stood right by my lectern and we just prayed, God, Leslie's got a smile and, and it's pretty, pretty spectacular. Would you just employ her smile? That's a talent that she has. She doesn't think she can sing. She can't speak. She can't bake. She can't play basketball. She can't do this. She can't do that. But boy, can she smile. God, her smile is yours. Do you know, she got back to Western New York and within two weeks, a fellow waitress asked her, Leslie, you make more tips than me. Why are you smiling all the time? Is it because you make more money than me? She said, no, let's take our break, and I'll tell you, because my smile comes from inside. They took their break together, and she shared during break how Jesus put a smile in her life. 
She said the girl wanted to pray with me because she wanted, she wanted whatever I had. She said by the end of our work day, she asked if I would come home and explain to her mother what I had explained to her during our break. And she said in their kitchen, her mother prayed at the kitchen table that she wanted Jesus in her life. So she said, I'm taking them through, it was not multiplying movements, what we have now, we had something called the Labors Network. I'm taking them through to help them learn how to be kingdom laborers 24-7 in their spheres of influence. About four or five months later, I get a call from Leslie. Dwight, you won't believe what's happening out here. Like, our church has been trying to distribute the Jesus film throughout our part of Western New York, but nobody will open their doors. She said it's very stoic and very, very, very people are very cold, and, and uh, she said I, nobody will open their door and receive the gift of a Jesus film, and she said, I know we used that when I was in training with you all, and I, I know it's great, so I, 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 I volunteered to help. And I went the first night, and they only gave me one. And, and I told them, I'll need more than one. And they said, oh, no, honey, we're, we're, we're fortunate if all of us together get, get anywhere from three to four. Our record is seven in a night. Um, and, and she said, they go out for two hours. But she said, Dwight, wait till you hear what happened. I got to my first door, and I remembered our prayer. I remembered how God has been blessing at my workplace. So she said, I rang the doorbell, and I started smiling. She said, I just kept it there. She said, I'm smiling at a door, but I felt like there was somebody looking through the peephole on the other side. So she said, I just kept standing there smiling. And she said, finally, the first door opened, because they all have two doors. Um, she said, the first door opened, and there's a big man standing there. And he said, honey, what are you smiling about? And she said, well, sir, he's opened the next door. Is, sir, I have a gift for you. It's free of charge. There's no charge for it at all. It's a free video about Jesus. And he said, honey, whoever's standing at my door smiling like you, I'll take whatever you got to give. And she said he reached out and took it, and I, I had to go down the block to get another Jesus film because they'd only given me one. She said, I was chasing people down all night to get one more because people were opening their doors because I think because I was smiling at them. She said, when we got back, I had broken their record of seven uh, that I distributed in the, my very first night, and they said, what did you do? And she said, I smiled. And they said, how? She said, I, like this. And, and, and she said, I know it sounds ridiculous over the telephone, but they asked me to show them how I did what I was doing. She said, now they want me to be the director of the program. So every time they come in, I teach them, the first thing you do is you smile. And by the way, you all look more d disarming and more engaged when you smile. She said, I can't believe how God's opening doors. Do you know within 11 months, they had distributed over 17,000 Jesus films throughout conservative, stoic, western New York. Why? Because Leslie didn't have anything special about her. No. <laughs> Leslie had a smile. Everything about us, fearfully, wonderfully made talents and spiritual gifts. Let's go to letter B. He can employ your hobbies and interests. I have a friend here in Denver um, who's a fly fisherman. Um, he said, Dwight, do you think, I mean, that's my hobby. I love to fly fish. Do you think God could use my fly fishing skills? I said, listen, I, well, Steve, um, like there's a couple fishing stories in here that are pretty spectacular. Like they would be probably front page on the 
Field and Stream magazine, you know. They're amazing. So it's possible he could use your passion for fishing. If that's your hobby, why don't you give it to him? The next thing I knew, Steve called me and he said, Dwight, get over to my house right now. I, I drove over to his house where he lives in Cherry Hills and he said, uh, Dwight, you will not believe what happened today. I've had a neighbor bugging me for years to teach him how to fly fish. I took him this morning. This was late afternoon. I took him this morning. I went up to my favorite mountain stream. I didn't even think about the fact that there's so much time as you're driving up to the mountain stream. And there's so much time on the stream. And there was so much time as we were getting our lunch together. And, and then as we were driving back, the guy unpacked all the stuff in his life. S troubles in his marriage, trouble with one of his kids. He unpacked the fact, and he said, I finally realized he doesn't know God in a personal way through Jesus. He said, the next thing I knew, I was telling him, listen, my wife and I, we had struggles, but I'll tell you who helped us. It's God. Um, uh, and, and he said, I was talking to him, and I went, oh, my word, I'm, I'm doing, like, I'm not on a stage, but I'm talking to somebody who, it was because he wanted to learn how to fly fish, and I know how to fly fish. He said, I can't believe what just happened today. He said, I've got another neighbor nine houses down who's always been asking me. I'm going to be taking him. The next thing I knew, Steve had started, he, he called it his ministry, Life on the Fly. Um, <laughs> Because he knew that ministry happens in the context of life. He, he got somebody to help him, and he designed a website because he realized there were people outside Colorado who might like to learn how to fly fish, and he knows where all the best spots are. So he developed a website. Eventually, he asked if he could lease an office out of Forge, our headquarters, because he said, my ministry's blowing up, and I need a place to be able to get, get all of these uh, trips and these people lined up who are learning how to fly fish, and they're learning about the one who teaches us how to be fishers of men. Steve said, I can't believe the way God's using what I've always had as a hobby. Paul was one of our students, and he came up to me at the end of class and said, so, you know what my hobby is? And I said, I have no clue. He said, have you not been watching me? And I said, well, maybe not close enough. He said, coffee. Coffee is my hobby. I love coffee. He said, I started drinking coffee when I was in grade school. I know coffee. I'm a connoisseur of coffee. I know where the best beans are. I know how they're supposed to be roasted. I know, every, I know stuff about coffee average people don't know. He said, you think that's employable? Because that's my hobby. Coffee's my hobby. I said, well, uh, let's give it to Jesus um, because this is unique about you. He went back to his community in the state of Indiana, and I got a call from a friend who lives in that community and said, Dwight, do you know what that kid uh, that came out to Colorado is doing in our community? I said, not exactly. I know he's mentoring a couple young boys in the community. He said, no, no. You do, do you know what he's doing with coffee? I said, no, I don't know what he's doing with coffee. So well, he, he found this guy who opened a coffee shop downtown, and it's not Starbucks. It's not Peaberries. It's not, it's not a known brand. But Paul went and tried it out and said it's the best coffee ever, found out the guy's importing beans, he's doing everything just right. So he went to the business owner who was struggling, couldn't get it off the ground, and said, if I can get paying customers to come through your door, can I talk to them loud enough for, me to hear, for them to hear me um, if they're buying your coffee? And he said, the business owner said, they're buying my coffee? And Paul said, yes, they're buying your coffee. He said, you got a deal. They shook on it. And Paul started inviting people to meet him at this coffee shop. He said, Dwight, I've seen it with my own eyes. I went one night. 
three nights a week, there are millennials, Gen Xers, meeting Paul. They're up to 75 kids who are sitting there with coffee in hand, and Paul is sitting on the opposite side of the coffee shop with his Bible on the coffee table, telling them about Jesus. And he said, I looked around the room, most of these kids have never been to a church in their life. But Paul, who's got a personality to boot and loves coffee, has got a free place to meet with them. And he's not standing up, he's just sitting with coffee in his hand at a coffee table in a coffee shop doing what he loves. Um, We have collected so many stories, a bunch of them are in the planning book, but I'll tell you about two in particular. Uh, Jessica said, I love makeup. And I said, well, you're way out of my zone. Uh, She said, no, no, like I've, you know that women wanna be beautiful and especially young women as they're emerging. And she said, I, um, I just, I want to I wanna see if Jesus could use this side of me. And we prayed about it. Jessica went back to Nebraska. She found out about a company called, um, I don't know, they, they, they actually, what was the name of this company? Mary Kay or something like that. Um, and uh, so she signed on to be a beauty consultant. And the next thing she knew, she had girls who were coming to learn how to apply makeup. And she said, you know, there's a lot of time when you're sitting at a table. And she said, as we were sitting at a table, because you've talked to us about meal tables, but now I got all kinds of cosmetics on the table. And she said, as I'm helping them understand some things about their unique physical attraction, I want them to understand that beauty starts from within. And so I start talking to them about where beauty comes from. And she said, I cannot believe the ministry I have with makeup on the table and young girls who are coming to my house to learn how to do makeup. That's ministry that looks like me. But Rosalie, Rosalie is an older woman who was on our accounting team at Forge. And she had learned this whole idea of being a kingdom laborer. And she said, I'm not like all the rest of you. She said, I do an old school thing. I, I knit. I like to knit. She said, I'm going to start a ministry. This this would be ministry that looks like me. She put an ad on Craigslist that she was going to teach people how to knit that wanted to come. Her husband fully supported it, and um, she had a lot of young gals who were coming, learning how to knit beanies for their their boyfriends, and, 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 and they wanted to learn how to knit a scarf for their their man for Christmas or for their child. And she, she had this knitting group, and she said, Dwight, you don't know this, but there's a lot of time to talk when you're knitting. And she said, I've been talking to... And she said, guess what? I think you and I are co-laborers. I said, I've never been to your knitting club. She actually started calling it her opus group. Opus, for her, said... She said, I, I'm calling it opus. Opus means old people up to something old people up to something. And she said, I think there ought to be more old people up to something. So she said, you tell people opus ought to be happening. Old people up to something. She said, because I know I'm a co-laborer with you. She said, there was a flight attendant who joined my knitting group. And we were talking and I used the word labor one night. And she said, that sounds like a guy who was on one of my airplanes once. He actually gave me a magazine that, that was like titled The Laborer's Journal. Um, his name's Dwight. She said, that was you. I know it was you. I know it was you. It had to be you. She's in my knitting group. I said, well, Rosalie, I, 
I didn't know we were co-laborers, but amen. I probably did talk to that flight attendant because ministry that looks like me involves travel too. And, you know, I meet lots of people who aren't strangers. You know, they're just people I've never seen before and I need to stop and spend enough time to get to know them. And so my wife and I were getting on an East Coast flight to come back. And as we're getting on the flight, um, you know how you walk onto an airplane. We're walking onto the airplane, and this very attractive flight attendant who's about midway back said, oh, there you are. Are you on my flight? And I, like, I froze. Like, I didn't recognize her right away. My wife said, who is she? <laughs> I said, honey, I don't know who she is. And this gal again said, I'm so excited you're on my flight. Where are you, what section are you in? I, oh, you're going to be in my section. That's awesome. I'm so excited to see you again. My wife said, she clearly knows who you are. I said, honey, I don't know. I don't know. She was fussing over helping us get our stuff in. And, and then she turned down toward us about two seconds later. And she said, I think I'm going to change sections. If it's okay with you, I, you might not remember me, but you were on one of my flights before, and you talked to me, and you told me stuff on the flight, and you gave me a magazine. I'm actually in a knitting group now, and I'm hearing more of this knitting group. And she said, I've got a flight attendant I've been trying to help. Could, could I? I'm going to switch places, and I'm going to have him come into your section, and you do with him what you did with me on that <laughs> flight that, that you were on with me. By the end of the flight, I'm not kidding, she came back repeatedly and said, do you have more of those magazines in your, um, in your briefcase? Because all the flight attendants, we've been talking to the galley, they all want one of those. Before I knew it, um, I, I was co-laboring with the flight attendant who was reaching her fellow flight attendants on the flight. And, and as we're walking off, we're walking down the jetway, leaving, uh, uh, exiting the gate, and my wife said, is that incredible or what? How does God do that? I said, well, he's got a laborship plan, and I don't know how to knit, um, and, and I'm not a flight attendant, but I'm a co-laborer with those two, I guess, doing what I know how to do. Listen, it's amazing how God can employ our hobbies, our interests. He can even employ the places we show up. Let her see. He can employ the places we show up. You learned last night that for James the roofer, it's the places he shows up as a roofer. But for Susan, the teacher, it's her class that she looks at it and realizes that many of these students, she is, she is inherited by the will of God because she's a skilled teacher. She said, I pray for my kids the way I hope our pastor prays for us as a congregation. They're my congregation. I'm their minister. I come in with the light of Jesus in my life and I pray for them regularly. I love these kids in the name of Jesus. She said, I can't always say the things, everything I want to say, but I get to be up close with these students. And she said, every now and then one will slip up and say, um, so Susan, how, or they'll call her by her, her last name, Mrs. Whatever. They'll ask me, like, what's so different about you? Because we like you more than the other teachers. And she said, then I can explain who I am. Because whenever they ask a question, I can always say, do you know one of the mentors that had a profound impact on my life who was one of the founders of Navigators, um, uh, Dawson Trotman? Um, he, when he told his testimony, um, he said, it was two single school teachers that are the reason I know Jesus and I've founded the ministry of Navigators that's become a worldwide ministry. He said, these were school teachers that would pray over their roster every year, earnestly pray for their students by name. And he said, then at the end of the year, they'd say, is there anybody you want on our master list from this year's class list? And these two single school teachers 
would let God give them a master prayer list. And he said, I found out years later that I had had Miss Mills and I'd had Miss Thomas, and that my name got transferred from a class roster to a prayer roster. And they prayed and prayed and prayed for me. He said, I was a hoodlum. I was a bad boy. But Miss Mills and Miss Thomas, two single school teachers, prayed for me, believing God had made them ministers in a place where nobody else was seeing people like me. And he said, eventually, one of them invited me to come to a youth group. And eventually, God did all these cool things that God did in my life. But you need to know it all started with two school teachers. For my sister, she fights two terrible physical maladies. She has fibromyalgia, and she has another thing. She doesn't get out much. She said, Dwight, you're the one that gets to be out among people and everything. I just wonder, what's, what's laborship look like that looks like me? Well, boy, did she discover it. About 15 years ago, about 15 years ago, she discovered that when she did feel well, Facebook was her place because she could ebb and flow physically and show up there. Literally now, Every time I'm opening something, there's thousands of them. I'll see a little note from Marcia, my sister, on somebody's site, on somebody else's site. They've lost their mother. They're going through a challenge. They're going through a divorce. And here's my sister at her home with fibromyalgia and this other autoimmune disease who's ministering to them. And then the next time I went to visit her, she said, oh, you should see my ministry with the UPS driver. I know all the UPS drivers now, and one in particular. I've told her, I pray for you every day. She said, you know, I have to order all the stuff to come to my house. I can't get out like other people, so they come to me. She said, you should see the ministry God's giving me with the UPS driver. And she said, you know, God allowed me to minister to my cleaning lady, and now my cleaning lady said, I want to be like you. And so my cleaning lady tells me now that the houses she goes to clean, she prays over the house, and she picks up the family pictures, and she prays over the family pictures, and she prays for all her clients because her ministry is through cleaning. She said, think about it. You helped me get started, but now I help somebody else get started. The cleaning lady has a ministry that she's doing in people's houses. I said, man, it's crazy. My friend who's a medical doctor began to discover that he had a ministry. And eventually he asked me to come in and train 100 of his employees in what we're doing here. As he said, I, he stood up in front of me and he said, listen, all of you, I want you to pay close attention because all of you get with patients at levels and in ways I don't. And you need to know the love of God that he's poured into our hearts. And if you don't know him in a personal way, I want you to get to know him. I'm the medical doctor who started this clinic, and I want you to know that our desire is to help bridge people with God. Um, he can even employ, letter D, your past experiences. What's that, past experiences? You know, some of you have lived a little bit of life. Don't think that your past experiences aren't employable by God. I had a little lady who was listening. This has been many years ago, and she said... I went home, and, and that week, because I had raised my hand, I wanted to lead a high-impact life, and I was willing to be a kingdom laborer, I read a letter from a prisoner to an, a, a, a magazine editor saying, do you know a grandmother-type person out there who would write to me in prison? 
Um, I just gave my life to Christ through a prison crusade, but I don't know what to do next. She said, I wrote to that editor, and I said, I raised five boys in my house. I'm not afraid of boys. You tell that boy, I'll write to him. So she began writing to this boy named Bob in prison. Next thing she knew, Bob introduced her to Paul, his cellmate. So she started sending them scripture verses to look up with questions and, and send back their answers. Well, she didn't know that, that Paul and Bob were going to get transferred. They had started reaching their cell block, but Bob got transferred to Alabama and Paul got transferred to, to Texas. The next thing she knew, she was writing to new prisons and they were developing Bible studies in their cell blocks. And the next thing I knew, I went to have lunch with Grace at her home on Strawtown Pike. Uh, and um, she said, uh, you can't hang your coat up in my downstairs closet. I, I, uh, well, you'll see. And I opened her closet and there was a, a file uh, drawer there. And I opened the file drawers and there were files on all her boys. All these boys that were prisoners that she was writing to. I opened the second drawer. Oh, my word. I heard her yell from the kitchen. She was wiping her hands on her apron. She had one leg shorter than another. And I could hear her in the kitchen, and she was wiping her hands. She said, just put your coat in the downstairs bedroom. We'll have lunch in a minute. So I walked in the downstairs bedroom to lay my coat on the bed there, and I turned around, and there was a map on the wall. There were dots all over the map. I presumed that was her boys, but I saw dots off the map. And I said, Grace, what are these dots down here in Cuba about? She said, oh, I'll tell you over lunch. It's, it's kind of extraordinary. We sat down at lunch, and I said, so Grace, what, 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 what are all the dots? She said, well, those are all my boys. But she said, then they started writing me about their girlfriends or their wives, and some of them started saying, you know, would you write to my wife, but she doesn't speak English. And, and she said, I didn't know what to do at first, but then I remembered that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I went to a bookstore and I bought a Spanish dictionary and a Spanish Bible. I thought, oh my word, like, I don't even know if that would work. I, I didn't say anything. And she said, and I tried to write a letter. I don't know if my letter made any sense, but I got a letter back. And then I sat here in my farmhouse going, God, I don't know what, I don't know how to read this. She said, I told one of my other old lady friends, and, and, and she said, well, you know, Clara uh, used to teach Spanish. Maybe Clara could come over to the farmhouse and help me read the letter. But Clara's coming now two mornings a week, and she's helping me with all the Spanish-speaking people. I said, how, how many people are you taking through daily Bible lessons, like your boys and these? She said, oh, it's over 2,000 now. I said, what? She said, yeah, I can't believe it. You know, I raised five boys and we ran a farm and I, I worked hard all my life. I've never worked harder than this. She said, I'm having a great time. She said, I love being a laborer. There's something fun when you're involved with Jesus and what he's involved in. You're on an adventure with him. I mean, I've asked crowds of people, do I look miserable to you? And they'll look at me and say, what? I said, do I look miserable to you? And they said, no. And I said, well, good. Welcome to the joy of laborership. It's quite a ride. Is it work? Yes. Is it worth it? Yes. Next thing I knew, I was speaking for a singles conference, and um, I was in San Francisco. My wife was with me, and I felt, have you ever felt like you're supposed to call somebody or text somebody? You ever get these impressions like I, somebody comes to your mind? And I thought, 
I, I think I need to reach out to Grace. It was such an urgent thing, so I called her. She said, I can't believe you've called me. Where are you? I said, I'm in California. She said, why'd you call me? And I said, well, I felt like I was supposed to call you. It's one of those, felt like I was supposed to, you know? Um, and she said, well, I can't believe you called me. My kids just left my house. They're all worried about me. They checked my bank account because she said, I'm going to tell you the truth. She said, I have so many now that I'm spending all my money on postage and everything. She said, the U.S. Postal Department contacted me, and they told me that the, the postman was tired of carrying all the letters up to my house, so they made me put an industrial-sized mailbox in front of my farmhouse so that he didn't have to do that every time. And she said, I got college students coming and helping me, Clara and a couple other volunteers helping me. And she said, my kids checked my bank account, and they found out there's only $14.53 right now in my bank account, and they're worried there's not going to be enough money to bury me she said they just left but she said but I don't care and I could hear her. she had one of those long she still had an old-fashioned phone with a cord and she's I could hear her walking around in her farmhouse with one leg shorter than the other and she could walk from room to room with that thing and she said I don't care because souls will get to heaven Dwight souls will get to heaven I said grace how many people are you writing these days putting them through daily Bible lessons, like you, you're sending them scripture verse. She said, I've got now over 15,543. Grace passed away a number of years back. And when she did, her kids reached out to me and told me what happened. They scrambled to try to figure out what to do with all of these people that Grace had been the minister to from her farmhouse because she used her past experience of not being afraid of boys because she'd raised five boys. She wasn't afraid of boys. And they found a prison ministry in Florida who'd been praying that God would enlarge their territory. And they brought over 20,000 names to him and said, this is our mother's ministry. And they picked up the baton and continued to run with it. It more than doubled the size of their ministry, what our mother was doing out of her farmhouse on Strawtown Pike. God can employ your past experiences, letter E. He can even employ the tragedy, pain, and suffering of your life. The tragedy, the pain, the suffering of your life. A little bit like my wife the night she'd had a miscarriage that day, but that was what became that common ground with Amber who came across and felt safe to tell Dawn what had happened in her life. For my friend Doug, after one of these conferences, he walked up to me and said, you know what, I, I'm battling cancer. And he said, I thought it was the worst thing that's ever happened in my life. But he said, I never thought about it until tonight when you talked about pain, tragedy, and suffering. He said, do you know what happened today? I had a neighbor from three houses down who had just come back from the doctors and he was just diagnosed with cancer and he stopped at my house before he even got home because the whole neighborhood knows I'm battling cancer. And he stopped at my house and asked if he could come and talk to me uh, as somebody else that's battling cancer. And he said, I can't wait to tell him. He said, I've never had a close conversation with this neighbor three doors down, but he's scared to death. And he said, what's giving me peace and strength right now is my relationship with God. And I want to walk this with him. He said, I would never have guessed that God would use my cancer journey as a platform for ministry with a guy three doors down. That's true of Chuck Colson, who went through Watergate and developed a prison ministry because he began to understand it. 
It's true of my friend Johnny Erickson Tata, whose, whose diving accident left her a quadriplegic, but in that state, she said, God began to give me the sight line of others who could see that I was also in a chair, and she said, suddenly I had a whole community of people who my pain, my tragedy from my diving accident and my suffering became my means of having common ground with them, and she said, God has given me such an incredible ministry from my wheelchair. You cannot believe what God has done through my life. I would never have had this profound impact. Uh, so, so know that God can use even the messes of our lives, you know, the difficulties of our lives. Um, Jesus ministered in mud puddles of human need. Jesus ministered in mud puddles of human need. Wrap this up and get, get to a break. God has designed each of his labors with a ministry uniform. Let's quickly fill this up. What is this uniform, a ministry uniform? Well, it's often a camouflage or camo, C-A-M-O, a camouflage uniform. Somebody tell me, what, what's camo about? Why do hunters wear camo? What, what's, what, why do soldiers wear camo? What's camo about, camouflage? Can't be seen. What's, what's that? Can't be seen? Blend in. B blend in. Yep, I'm, I'm listening. Hidden. Yeah. Kind of look the same as? No wonder Jesus said, hey, I'm, I'm a carpenter, I'm a builder, I'm from the little town of Nazareth. He, he wanted to get up close, up close. Camouflage allows soldiers to get closer. Camouflage allows hunters to get closer. So what's camouflage? Camouflage sometimes is, is the ordinariness, and sometimes we all want to be so special, you know, but, but actually what makes people comfortable with us my parents now, 90 and 92, have said to me, now listen, Dwight, you need to know that aging is not for sissies. Um, it's tough stuff. But what they also said to me is, you know what, some of the best camo that we've ever had in our whole life is our gray hair because people aren't frightened of us. We'll stand in line and we'll smile and start a conversation and people are friendly with us. When we were young, they were, it was kind of a little a little more standoffish, but now that we're old, they think we're unfrightening. We're, you know, we're old people, but you should see the ministry we have in our neighborhood. They all know us. They all keep checking. My mom laughs. She said, you know, I know all my neighbors by name now. I pray for them. They know I pray for them. I have tea parties with them. She said, I couldn't do that when I was young like I'm doing it now. They all like to come by and see Miss Agnes, the 92-year-old. They even come by and look in my window to make sure I'm still moving in there because they worry about me. What's camo? It's anything that allows us, letter B, a camouflage uniform allows us to naturally connect with people in their world. It might be the job you have, and they just think of you as just a fellow worker on that job. It might be the neighborhood or the apartment complex you live in. You're just the neighbor. You know, to them, you're not intimidating. You're not frightening. Uh, letter C, what was Jesus' camouflage uniform? How did it assist in his ministry? Well, he had normal everyday parents, Joe and Mary. They, they, some people even said, you know, aren't, aren't Joseph and Mary his parents? And we, 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 don't we know his family? And like, he, he's just ordinary. You know, nothing about him to them made him somebody that frightened them away. He was from Nazareth. He had a regular job like regular people. Normal people were around him. He pulled people around him who were normal people. He was non-intimidating. 
I don't know why it is, but sometimes we plan and execute events, but Jesus relationally met with people outside the walls. I had one woman, uh, when I was doing a plan A conference, she walked up to me and she was in her 70s and she said, do you know what I'm probably most disappointed about? She said, my entire life, I have always, always cared about people and I've always gone up and down my road inviting people to come to our church. She said, do you know how many people have come to my church? Zero. And I've spent my whole life inviting people to come to my church. I never once thought about inviting them to come sit on my porch for iced tea. I never once thought about having them come to my house to sit over lunch with me, and they would have done that. And I could have been a stepping stone toward where I eventually wanted them to go, but they weren't ready to go to the church building yet. She said, I didn't understand. They would have sat on my porch. They would have come to my house for a casual peanut butter and jelly lunch, macaroni and cheese. By the way, Rosalie, who did knitting, I went to her um, 75th uh, birthday party. And there were nine ladies there at this party um, who wanted to honor her. And um, one woman stood up and she said, you remember the day you changed my life, don't you? And Rosalie, she's so blunt, she said, what? Change your life? I don't think so. She said, yes, you do. You do remember the day you changed my life. Rosalie said, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, I'm just going to say it. Everybody needs to know, I fought depression, and I was depressed. I couldn't even get out of bed. I didn't even put my clothes on. You remember that day you came to my house? You came to my house, and you said, put your clothes on. And you even went to my closet and started pulling clothes out. I didn't like the ones you pulled out, so I put on other clothes. And then you said, we're going to the mall. We're going to walk the mall. We walked the mall, and then you brought me to your house, and you served me. And Rosalie spoke up. What did I serve you? I don't even know. She said, you served me tomato soup and grilled cheese sandwiches. Comfort food is what the lady said. You touched my soul that day. And that's why I wanted to hear everything else you had to say. Hmm, crazy. Rosalie was just another old person who was up to something. God has given each one of his laborers a story to share with others. Let's talk about it. Your story is really a part of God's bigger story. And you've got tons of stories. You don't have to worry about, you know, all the stories where God's shown up for you. He'll know which story is the appropriate story for the appropriate person in the appropriate moment. But I remember when Logan came marching down our basement steps at our house, he was so upset. And he said, Mr. Robertson, you need to tell your son Drayson to stop talking to me about Jesus. Our family doesn't believe in Jesus. Tell him to stop it. I stood there for a moment trying to figure out what to do. I said, well, Logan, I'll tell you what. I'll make you a deal. I will tell him to stop talking about World War II history and Star Wars and army guys, and Jeff Gordon and racing. He said, you could never get him to stop talking about that. That's what he's most passionate about. And I said, that's why he's talking to you about Jesus, too. 
He said, so are you going to tell him to stop talking to me about Jesus? I said, all he does, Logan, is talk to you about the things he's passionate about. Star Wars, World War II, Jesus, all these things. So Logan went back up the stairs, and I listened from the bottom of the stairs, and I heard him say, Drayson, I just talked to your dad. You better talk, stop talking to me about Jesus. Well, Drayson knows his father quite well. Drayson said, Logan, my dad didn't, would never say that. And besides, you wouldn't even have me as a friend if it wasn't for Jesus. And I, I thought, whoa, whoa, what, what? Drayson went on. I could hear him scrambling in our downstairs uh, curio closet. And I couldn't think, what is he doing? I could hear the noise up the steps. And, and, he's, he's, and then he said, look at that. Do you know who that is? And he's pointing at a photo album that we have at our house of our son when he was born in distress. Neonatologists, we had lost three pregnancies, and neonatologists told us that Drayson likely wasn't going to live and an absolute miracle transpired. Drayson started, he said, that's me. And I heard Logan go, whoa, that's you? That doesn't look like you. What is, it? What is all that? He said, that's all the tubes, and that's all the stuff. I'm in the hospital, and I was dying. Now, Logan was about this tall, and my son was about this tall. He was big for his age. Logan said, how'd you, how'd you get like, like that? He said, God did it. Logan, I'm trying to tell you, God did it. And he made the universe too. You just need to get over it. He's real. And you wouldn't have me as a friend. He healed my body and he heals our souls. Well, I talked to Drayson later that night. He said, Dad, I didn't know what to do, but just tell him my story. We all have a story and it's a part of God's bigger story. Um, you're a living endorsement of God's love and power. You're a living endorsement of God's love and power. And you don't have to be, letter C, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to tell others what God has done in your life. Let's go to number five. Multiplying labors are needed who will pass their own. Now, I'm going to call it something unique here. They're going to pass their own spiritual wealth. Who are going to pass your own spiritual wealth. What's spiritual wealth? It's anything that you've come in contact with, anything you know of, about God or something that's helped you or, or some, some place that's, that's blessed you, whether it's a radio station you listen to on the dial because it's Christian music and it encourages you. How many of you like Christian music? You know, how, how many of you have read a, a, a verse in the Bible that's really helped you in your life? You've read a verse in the Bible, that's a part of your spiritual wealth. How many of you have ever read a Christian book that's helped you? Anybody read a Christian book that's helped you? How many of you know where there's a group of Christians that are encouraging and helpful? You're, you're sitting among one right now. You know, like, you know who you are? You're the spiritually wealthy of the world. You have a lot of stuff other people don't have. Start passing and sharing things that are a part of your life. That's your arsenal. That's stuff that you have and you know. You used to think that stuff was just for you because it helps you, but no. That's like a pantry shelf. You're like a pantry shelf. you got all this stuff that God's brought to you. So start thinking about it. I wonder if I could pass that to that person. Boy, that book really helped me. Well, I love that song. I wonder, I've, I've, I've passed my phone to somebody and said, you need to look up this song and this, you'll really like this song. 
And they'll download it, and a week later they're going, whoa, where did you get that song? Well, there's a lot of other songs like that that tell us about God's love. Whoa, that was so amazing. Like, I want more of that. Start passing the things that have helped you. You and I have spiritual wealth and we want to pass. The last thing here is letter B, and that's we want to help wake up the body of Christ. We want to help wake up the body of Christ. What do I mean by that? I was on a flight 83 from Washington, D.C. to Denver. It was late at night. It was so late, but you know how we gain time when we're on the East Coast and we're coming back, so they do a lot of those flights. The pilot came on the, the uh, sound system and said that he was going to turn the lights out on the plane so those of us who wanted to sleep could. And, and I was so exhausted, I fell asleep, dead sleep. Has, has anybody ever woken you up when you're like really out and really tired? And you're like, you can't even, you don't even know where you are. When I woke up on this flight, there was a dude literally like this close to my face, shaking me, waking me up. I almost decked him. Like, what in the world is. You know, and he said, sir, excuse me, excuse me, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but you've got to see, I'm sitting across the aisle from you, you've got to see what's going on outside the plane. I said, I fly a lot, I don't know what's going on outside the plane, but I've probably seen it before. Like, I'm actually kind of ticked that he's just woken me up. He said, sir, I'm a 100,000 miler, I've never seen this before, you've got to see this. And he went back to his seat, and I got out of my seat and looked leaned over him, it was the most amazing, I mean, it was better than 4th of July, lightning going off in the distance in cloud formations. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. It was spectacular. So spectacular that the woman I'd been talking to earlier when we first got on the flight, I woke her up, and she said, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I said, just a minute, you've got to see this. And she got out of her seat, and she looked out, and she woke up the lady that she knew. She had a friend in the seat in front of us. She woke her up while I woke up the guy that was behind me because we had both been putting our luggage up and got into a conversation before. The next thing I knew, people were waking each other up on the flight, and we were all looking out the right side of the airplane at this amazing thing. And suddenly the pilot comes on the system and said, excuse me, I, I understand that you're all finally seeing what we were watching from the cockpit, but I need a lot of you to return to your seats because the, we're trying to adjust up here and the flight attendants have told us that you're all awake back there and you are all seeing this breathtaking wonder that we're, we're looking at uh, off to the end, the side. I want you to know but that is exactly what we need to do as the body of Christ. We need to wake up the slumbering giant. We are the body of Christ. Christians everywhere don't understand. We're God's kingdom labors, and they think what we're supposed to do is just come to a building a couple times a week, put money in the plate, and support what's happening there, and they don't know that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, there's all kinds of people and opportunities for stopping, spending time, seeing through unique ministry that looks like us. Conversations that start with, oh, I have back pain too. And they start telling you and you start telling them and the next thing you know, you're talking at levels or, oh, you're, a, you're another Bob? Do you, do you spell yours with just one O? Because I spell mine with just one O. And it's amazing the things that you and I have that are unique about us that are employable by him everything about you. Cup your hands with me. We're going to close this session with this. This is the way the Israelites used to pray before Jehovah Jireh, their provider. 
everything you need for life and godliness. They'd pray before Jehovah Jireh, God, their provider. Almost like physically they were saying, I know everything I need comes from you. 2 Peter 1, 3 tells us that everything we need for life and godliness comes from him. 2 Peter 1, 3. So, God, you've poured a lot in to us. Now we want to pour a lot out on others. Thank you for all you've poured in so far. A whole lot of stories in our lives where you've shown up. A whole lot of things that we're passionate about, their hobbies and interests and past experiences. And, and we're actually people who in our tennis shoes, in our, our common everyday vernacular, we can, we can be up close to others in camouflage. They're not frightened by us. And as we get there, whether it's to pour out a little love or kindness or a smile or, or Jesus, we are salt and we make them hungry for living water, you. Help us to know that our porches and our living rooms and our conversations over our hobby tables, the places we go, that you've poured out a lot and we don't want to just keep coming like this to you. We want more, we want more, we want more. Help us to pass what we have. And as we do, Lord, help us to wake up others to the reality that they can do the same. Jesus, thank you for this, this opportunity for us to know that as Scripture told us at the very beginning, each one of us has grace that's been given as you apportioned it. I could look across at some of these lives in the room and go, man, I wish I knew how to do that. I wish I was good at that. But I don't want to wish away my life. There are things about me that cause me to get down with little kids who are, who are unruly because I know what it was like to feel like one of those. A past experience for me. I know what it was like for everybody to be disgusted with me. And those are kids who need to be seen and loved. Lord, every one of us in this room, there's uniquenesses about us. So as Nathan takes us into some fun stuff, uh, activities this morning, I pray, Lord, that you will help us discover the uniqueness that you've put in, in our lives for your benefit and for the kingdom advance that you intend through us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, Nathan, I don't know whether maybe they're going to want to bio break first and then you, but I'll let you be the controller of that. Yeah, how's everybody feeling? Maybe a little break? Yeah, let's take five minutes. Um, so right at 10 o'clock on the dot, let's be back sitting down. All right, everybody, if you could start to find your seat. One minute, one minute. <laughs> I think the coffee is officially piping hot, so...
Yes, we also have more. We have more chocolate if you would like it. All right. Awesome, awesome. Does anybody have any good dad jokes? Any good dad jokes? Dad jokes, you know, like uh, silly pun jokes. Yeah, the, the ones that you're like, uh, not like grossed out, but just like, oh, that was lame. <laughs> oh, 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 that's awful. All right, everybody, find your seat, find your seat. We're going to need, you're going to need to find page 11. Find page 11 in your notebook. All right. I got a, I got a dad joke for you. You guys ready? It's the lamest joke in the history of the world. All right. So this baker makes two muffins, puts them in the oven. One muffin turns to the other muffin and says, man, it's getting hot in here. And the other muffin says, oh my gosh, a talking muffin. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> I thought that was funny. All right. Thank you. I appreciate you. <laughs> a talking muffin. All right. Yeah, it's true. Oh, there you go. <laughs> it's true. So uh, right now we're going to go through this thing called a personal ministry inventory. And this is just a simple way for you to process through some of the, the gifts and talents and hobbies and passions that God has given you. Um, so you'll need to grab a pen. Uh, hopefully there's several on your table with, that you have access to. Does anybody need a pen that doesn't have one? All right. Awesome. So um, I'll just tell you guys a quick story. I recently got into bow, bow shooting. Uh, Gabe Elkington, if you guys remember him, he, he passed down an old bow to me, and I went and got it fixed up. And man, oh man, there is a lot of joy in, in shooting a bow, isn't there? And uh, Shooting at the bow range is a lot different than shooting at the rifle range. At the rifle range, everybody's grizzled and angry, it feels like, and they're just, like, so loud, and, you know, everybody keeps to themselves. But at the bow range, everybody's really welcome. You know, they're willing to have a great conversation. I've had some amazing conversations at the bow range. Anyway, all that to say, God can use anything, just like Dwight was teaching us. God can use anything. So uh, right there on page 12... Uh, start looking. Uh, there, there's a whole list of things that you might be passionate about, and we would just like you to take those lines, those lower lines. What are some things, those those hobbies or recreational interests that you particularly are resonate with? And feel free to get creative. A any anything that you're passionate about. Society of Historic Anachronism. 
Ah, <laughs> uh, gotcha. We watched a Netflix documentary about it. Fascinating. The one in Pennsylvania. What is it? The pen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, next one is, what season of life are you in? Are you a student, single, married, uh, fill, in, fill in the blank there? <laughs> I'm the wrong person to ask how to spell words. Huh? Opus? Oh, I don't <laughs> what are your financial resources? <laughs> I've been there. And am sometimes still currently there. How about some life experiences you've had? Maybe there are some... Maybe you've taken a trip. Maybe you've had some job experiences, relational experiences, educational experiences. What are some life experiences you've had? And then you'll note that the next one is painful life experiences. Maybe you've gone through cancer or another disease. Maybe you've lost a child or a family member. Maybe you've had a serious injury or a, a spiritual struggle. Maybe you know what it feels like to be lonely. Maybe you know what it feels like to be the crazy kid. Maybe you know what it feels like to be the awkward kid. Moving on to page 14. What are some of your spiritual gifts? Uh, this is by, by no means a, an extensive list. There are many, many spiritual gifts. And if you're not sure of your spiritual gifts, I have a great test for you uh, that you might find insightful. You'll find it at spiritualgiftstest.com. Um, great, great resource. Uh, it's one of my favorite ones because it includes all of them. The Ephesians gifts, the Romans gifts, and the Corinthians gifts, First Corinthians gifts. Uh, spiritualgiftstest.com, no spaces. And it should be free for you as an individual. Test, uh, singular. Hey, Nick, could you call Taylor? Um, she keeps calling me. Thanks, man. <laughs> yeah. Next one on the list is... <laughs> do you have any special skills 
Maybe you're mechanical. Maybe you love to host, host people in your home. Maybe you're artistic. Okay. Okay, I'll call her in five minutes. <laughs> I'm glad we're a family here, huh? <laughs> oh, okay. So uh, what, what are some of the ordinary places that you find yourself in on a day-to-day basis? That's uh, page 15. Uh, maybe it's work. Maybe it's school. Uh, where, where are some of the ordinary places that you find yourself in on a day-to-day basis? You know, people don't tell you this, but when you get into vocational ministry, sometimes your whole life is consumed by paperwork and administrative tasks, and you have to, you end up having to find ways to be, like, actually do ministry uh, with people. Uh, I find that um, the, the places that I feel the most comfortable and confident is when I'm standing in front of somebody who has to talk to me, like uh, the cashier you know, they have to talk to you, that's the easiest place for me. <laughs> or uh, I, I made friends when we were redoing our basement, uh, the basement that Taylor and I lived in. Uh, I made friends at Home Depot. Knew everybody by name, was bragging on them to people. Uh, that was the easiest place for me to build connections. So uh, maybe it's an unexpected place like that that you find yourself in. Waiters and waitresses, love them. It's so easy to talk to them because they have to talk to you. So... <laughs> Because I know you guys don't believe me, but I'm deathly afraid of making friends. Anyway. (laughs) It's the spirit of the Lord in me that allows me to do anything other than that. Also, by the way, guys, sorry about the temperature. We're chasing. You guys know the fall. It's like you have to have the heater on in the morning and the air conditioning on in the afternoon. So we're chasing it. So sorry about that. We'll, We'll try and make it as comfortable as possible. So uh, next one on page 16 is stepping outside your comfort zone. Are you willing to take a step of faith to go outside of your comfort zone to minister for God simply because you love him? If you answered yes, even a timid yes, like me or or many others, I'm sure, uh, here's a few examples of how you can do that. Uh, Going out of your way to reach others, putting yourself in unfamiliar places, using newly developed gifts, changing locations, or taking financial faith steps. And you guys can obviously see the rest of that list there. Maybe there's something else that the Lord might be putting on your heart. One thing that I love to do is uh, people who I haven't had a conversation with in a long time, shoot them an encouraging text message. Hey, I was just thinking about you today. Wanted to let you know I was praying for you. Love you. Uh, And it's an easy way to start a conversation. happy birthday post on Facebook. I don't know how many of you guys are on Facebook, but that's another great way to start conversations. (laughs) 
And now is your time to dream. So I want to just take five minutes or so, and we'll just kind of sit quietly. You might be able to find some a, a blank space there at the bottom of 14. Uh, look over all everything that you've written down, and let me tell you a story really quick. So I'm learning Swahili, which is the language of East Africa. And when you're, I'm using this thing called Pimsleur, and it's like this radio thing. So you listen, and they say something, you're supposed to repeat it, and then you start having a conversation with the computer. And so, like, the greeting, for example, is Habarigani, and then you're supposed to reply Habarigani. And uh, I remember the very first time I'm going through all this, and I have it in my brain. It's locked in. I'm ready to go. And then I land in East Africa. Someone walks up to me and says Habarigani, and I freeze. Because you, uh, like, it's as if everything went out of my brain and all this practice that I had done for 30 days was completely gone and obliterated. And all of a sudden, I was put on the spot. And so one of the reasons that I would encourage you to process through this is so that when you do get put on the spot and you might be in that difficult or awkward situation where you've engaged, started a conversation, you're like, where do I go from here? Um, compiling your ideas can be really helpful. So take a look really quick over all of your lists and say, hey, here's, here's my next step. And just make a commitment to saying, this is my next step. Page 14, there's that blank space at the bottom. All right. As you guys begin to wrap that up, um, I want you to share your next step with somebody at your table. Uh, if you have a small table, maybe you can share it with somebody at another table. Um, in fact, it would be great if you could just go around and say, hey, here's my next step. Here's the, the venue of life that I would like to begin taking steps as a laborer. Here's the people that I might want to reach. Here, whatever, whatever sentence you wrote down as your next step, I would just like you to share that. And in so sharing, you're kind of like making a commitment in front of the body of Christ to say, hey, this is what I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to do this. Sound good? All right, go ahead. All right, maybe uh, two more minutes, two more minutes to share. All righty. I hope everybody got a chance to share. Um, before we transition to the next session, I'd just like to take a couple of minutes and just pray for you guys, pray for all of us really, uh, including myself, uh, that we would use our unique gifting uh, to, to become a laborer. So let's pray. Father God, we pray in the name of Jesus that uh, you would empower us through your Holy Spirit to utilize our unique gifting to, to become a laborer. Lord, we pray that uh, you would help us to see the, the unique places that our feet take us and the unique people who are standing in front of us and, and all of the unique and special ways that you've made and created us uh, as, as a blessing to others. Father, I pray that we would fully step into your vision for this world as, as intercessors, as priests, as people who proclaim your good news to others. Lord, I pray against fear. I pray against anxiety. I pray against timidity. And I pray that you would fill us with courage and peace and joy to be able to step into your ministry for us. We love you. and We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, Dwight, you ready? All right. So we'll be moving on to the next session on page 17. Okay, you guys are way too fun to be with. I'm, I'm loving this. Are you having a good time? How are you doing? 
Let me ask you what some of the things are so far from last night and today that are personally standing out to you. Uh, give me a little bit of feedback. What are, what are some things God's just kind of, maybe he's just nudging you like, yep, that's for you. Um, anything? Yeah, Mary. You know, I, I want to uh, refresh something for everybody in the room. Uh, handwritten notes on post-its, on cards, whatever, different than electronic. We're so quick to do the fast, easy electronic, but it gets, eventually it disappears. Did you hear what she hears back is, I've saved it. I've reread it. How many of you have ever gotten a note or a letter of encouragement from somebody? You've gotten one. Leave your hand up. Leave your hand up. Uh, only put your hand down if you read it once and threw it away. How many of you think you kept the note for a little while? How many of you think you read it more than one time? If that's the impact, encouraging little notes. I had to learn way back on my kingdom laborship journey. I'm not a big letter writer, but I could write four sentences. Hey, Joe, I saw you help that little lady out to the car and clean off her windshield. I thought that was so cool. I could imagine that's something Jesus would do. Joe, keep on keeping on, Dwight. Four sentences, and Joe's encouraged. You know what Hebrews 3.13 says? Hebrews 3.13 says, encourage one another daily so that none of us will be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Encouragement's a big deal. That's a big deal. And all of us as laborers need to know there's times. I've had times where I've written a note to like a teenager. And then their Bible will get left behind at our church. And, and they're trying to identify who the Bible is. And they'll say, do you know this person? There's a note in here from you. It's a five-sentence note. You know, hey, uh, I prayed for you this morning. Here's a verse of, in the Bible that's really helped me in my life. I hope this helps you in your life. Oh, by the way, Josh, I think God's up to something great in your life. Keep on keeping on, Dwight. It wasn't even six sentences. And the kid has it in his Bible, and he's reading it over and over again. There's a lot of negative stuff, people, here in this world. And as God's people, we want to join God. God's cheering them on, and he needs some extra voices to help cheer on. That's why Hebrews 3.13 says, encourage one another, not every year or a couple times, you know, in a lifespan, but encourage one another daily. Somebody else, what, what's been standing out to you? How's God been nudging or encouraging or, or inspiring or instructing? Clarity, purpose, strategy. I remember as I was reading my Bible for the first time and I just kept, then for a long time somebody said, keep recycling through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because if you want to fix your eyes on Jesus, all of those Gospels are about Jesus. They keep you seeing him, seeing him, seeing him, seeing what he did, how he interacted with different types of people, what he did in different circumstances. And, and that just started bringing so much clarity for me and purpose in my own personal life because he was, he was out in real life where I was doing real life. Um, and so that was very helpful, very encouraging. Somebody else. How else is God nudging you, encouraging you, inspiring you, instructing you? You want to personalize this. Yes. Is it Stan? Yes. Yes. Stan, that's so good. And I, I, I want to remind you that when we say everything's employable by God, I, I, I laughed. When I married my wife, 
I learned that when we went for a walk, if anybody came near us with a dog, we were going to engage because she had to engage that dog. It's almost like people who begin to have children. Do you remember when you started having, you had a child and suddenly people would talk to you? Like they didn't even see you. They'd see your child. They'd move straight toward your child or straight toward your pet. Um, it does become an avenue of connection. Uh, interesting, as you were talking about books, I will tell you that one of the guys stand very similar to you who had a profound impact on my life was an avid reader and he began believing that books weren't just for him. And he started buying occasional books for me, and he'd write in the front of the book. Dwight, this is a book that had a profound impact on my own personal life. I think it could be a real blessing to you. I hope these pages further inspire the journey God has you on. Keith. Well, when he wrote in the front of the book, I felt obligated to read because I thought he's probably going to ask me if I read it because he wrote in the front of it. It wasn't just a clean book. He wrote in the front. Remember what we said about personal handwritten notes and encouragement? I'll tell you, I read his note over and over and over again because he believed in me enough to even invest buying a book for me. I read the book. The first one he gave me was a book called In His Steps by Charles Sheldon, which is, begs the question, what would Jesus do? Oh my word, it had such a profound impact in my life. The second book he gave me, I was definitely going to read because I, I, I actually got a couple of my friends to read In His Steps by Charles Sheldon because Keith, who was a reader, passed that book to me. When we talk about spiritual wealth, some things that have come to you are not just to bless you. You become aware of them in order to bless others. And people started laughing because I actually had a budget item in my personal budget that was to buy books for other people, because Keith had had such an impact passing books to me, I wanted to be that kind of person, passing books to others. By the way, I always write in the front of them, because I want them to read the book, because that book Jesus used to change my life. So I always write in the front of the book, so that they will do what I did, which is, oh, I'll probably have to read this, because he wrote in the front of it, and he's probably going to ask me. I love seeing what God does when we pass the spiritual wealth. Great, great comments, Dan. I love that. Sue? I like to walk. You know, I, what I love about Karen, you know her name. When you learn names, I want to tell you how significant that is. That isn't just significant because the next time you see them, you can call them by name. And when you do, they live what they feel is an invisible life because nobody cares about them. So when you see them the next time, you can actually go look for where is she at Walmart, which line, because there's Ashley, there's Ashley. And you can get in Ashley's line, even though it's the longer line, you can get in Ashley's line because when you get up there, you go, Ashley, how are you doing? How are your kids? Are they feeling better? Because last time, you remember, Ashley told you she was worried about her kids at home who were sick. And she's a single mom. She doesn't have a choice but to go to work. And she kept calling and checking on him. And, and you told Ashley, listen, I'll be praying for, for your kids. Um, uh, I'll be praying. So you've come back to Ashley's line to ask her. When you learn their name, Jason, the coach, he told me, Dwight, one of the reasons I actually coach in the, in the parks and rec system is because he said, 
My life, how many of you would say this is true of you? How many of you believe that you're where you're at today because somebody prayed for you? Like you know that your life is where it's at today because somebody prayed for you. Praying grandma, praying mom, praying dad, praying somebody prayed for you. And he said to me, I'm where I'm at today because I was lucky. I was one of the lucky ones. I had people who prayed for me. But he said, I think about these kids that I'm coaching. They don't have a praying dad. They don't have a praying grandma. They don't even have a praying mom. They, they have nobody. He said, so I'm learning their names, not just to coach them. But he said, that's my prayer list. And I might be the first guy who's ever speaking their name before God's throne, the way my grandmother used to speak my name before God's throne. And he said, I, I know they think of me as just Jason the coach, but I'm actually an intercessor. And I'm praying for Karen. I'm praying for, you know, you're, you're praying for them by name. When you learn their name... How many of you believe prayer changes things? Yes, yes. So that's one of the things as laborers we get the chance to do, is we get a chance as we're learning people, we get a chance to bring heaven's power to their life through prayer. Because you've said prayer changes things. So that is a powerful thing. The, the woman I mentioned last night with, uh, when I made eye contact with my wife, my wife sent me on a, a honeydew errand list she had the list of stuff she needed for a project she was on, and she sent me to a place called TJ Maxx Home Goods. And I, I didn't think I needed a cart. You know, it didn't look like that big a deal, but by the time I got everything in my arms, I was like this. And so I was standing in the line juggling this stuff without a cart, and then it says, register number five, and it was the one way on down there. And the lady looked around, and she saw that I was struggling. She saw me. So she came running around the counter and she ran over to me and says, you need help. And she started picking up my stuff. Uh, I mean, I'm just Dwight the shopper at this point. I'm not James the roofer. I'm Dwight the shopper doing my honey-do list. And, and I, we get all the stuff on the counter and I said, thank you so much. And she said, what, what are these big eyeglasses and like this big hand and um, this clock? Like, why did you buy these three things? They don't, they seem incongruent. And I said, well, um, uh, actually, they kind of are a message my wife wants to be prominent. So it's the glasses are what you did. You saw me down there, and you came to help. So you got up close to help me. So that's, you know, you saw me. Then the hand is, is to remind us to stop, and then the clock is to spend time with. I literally, I'm standing at TJ Home Goods four weeks ago um, buying these items, and and she, she said, oh, that's so beautiful. She said, I wish more people did that. I've been living here for five years. Um, I, I'm, I'm raising my three kids here. I haven't seen my husband in five years. Um, uh, he, we're still trying to get him here. It's been really hard. And I said, well, I'll be praying um, for you. And she immediately said, well, I'm a Muslim. And I said, well, I'm a Christian. And I pray to Jesus, and I'll be praying to Jesus. What's your husband's name? She said, my, my husband's name is Innes. And I said, I'll be praying for Innes. Um, and she said, do you know how to spell it? <laughs> like, that would matter. But I said, I, is it I-N-N-I-S? She said, yes, yes, that's right. I said, I'll be praying for Innes to Jesus. I'll be praying to Jesus for Innes. Um, I went to take my stuff out to my car and I'd left something behind and I came back in and she said, just a minute, just a minute. Um, here's our name. 
and she gave me her name and her phone number, and, and um, she said, give this to your wife, too. Well, the next thing I, I, so I wrote down, here's Dwight and Dawn Robertson, and here's our telephone number. I'm at TJ Maxx Home Goods. I didn't go there to have a ministry conversation. It's just along the way. And, and, uh, she, she, and I said to her one more time, I'll be praying to Jesus for you, for you and Innes. Um, that night, we get a text message. It's the names of her sons. She wants us to pray for her sons, too. And then we, we'll be praying for them. Then she sends us pictures of her family and pictures of her sons so we'll know what they look like when we're praying to Jesus for her family. She's a, a Muslim by birth, but she... Do you know how many people don't think they know how to pray? And when you say, I'll be praying for you, that's a big deal to them because they think that's something that only special people can do. I mean, you really are a minister at that point, like Jason the coach or, or Dana the nurse who tells her patients, I've been praying for you. You know, when you say those things, that's a transaction they think they don't know how to do. They don't know prayer is something anyone can do to talk to God. But when you do that, you are loving them. So... Um, it's a really cool thing that, that uh, you know, you've got Karen on your heart and mind, and, and you go as an ambassador. When you learn a name, that's an opportunity for you to step into the gap. But, but let's, let's go to our notes here. We'll, we'll keep, we'll keep uh, sharing uh, as we go along, but let's go to page 17, Up Close Impact. All right, here we go. Um, so... I, I've traveled back and forth in different parts of the world, and I want to tell you a quick, because it's such a powerhouse story that really helps to demonstrate the reality of you. So, in Australia, Frank Kluwer, true story, Frank Kluwer got up in Warrnambool, Australia, and checked his weather app and realized that it was going to be colder than he thought, brisk enough that he thought maybe he ought to pull on a wool sweater. And then as he stepped outside, went, I don't think that's going to be enough. And he, he went back in and pulled a nylon jacket out of his closet and put the nylon jacket on and because he had a bunch of errands that he was going to run that day. So he got in his car and he began driving errand to errand with his nylon jacket over his wool sweater, um, never thinking at all about what might be transpiring as he was just moving about. I want you to look at your feet for a minute, because um, I'm, 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 I'm looking at feet. Uh, now, you know, my wife said to me this morning, are those comfortable shoes you're wearing? You know, sandals and shoes and tennis shoes and seeing all kinds of feet in here. You know, the beautiful thing about feet is um, feet put you places, unique places. Your feet are what move this, what Corinthians tells us, 1 Corinthians 3.16, know ye not, you're the temple of God's spirit. So when your feet are moving, the temple of where he's housed, because he's housed in you, you know, what do you teach? How many of you have worked with children at church? Anybody worked with children? When you teach them where Jesus is, you teach them Jesus is in your what? Jesus is in your heart. Yeah, you teach them. You teach them that he, according to 1 Corinthians 3.16, know you not, you're the temple of God's spirit. You teach them that he lives in you. So think about it. 
Jesus, who most of the ministry we love to read about in the scriptures, most of the ministry that he's doing is outside the four walls of the synagogue. His feet are on the move. Sometimes it's at a beaches. Sometimes it's where the boats are docked. Sometimes it's at a table. You know, he's just sitting with people at a table. Other times he's sitting, you know, over non-bottled spring water with one woman, you know, who'd gone, come to get water. And I mean, his feet are moving. And all the stories we read were because his feet was moving, were moving where people were at. So Frank Kluwer is moving. Never thinking about it. As he's moving, he had another quick... Uh, third appointment of the morning that he needed to make at the bank building. True story. When he walked in the bank building, not thinking about the wool sweater and the nylon jacket he had on, um, people who later were interviewed by the U.S. Pre uh, press corps and UPI World Press, people who were in the bank building said they heard like snap, crackle, pop, almost like there was electricity somewhere in the air that was snapping around and they couldn't figure out what it was. Um, Frank actually later said he heard it, didn't know where it was coming from. Uh, all he knew was that when he finished his transaction at the teller window, he turned around to walk out of the bank building and uh, as he just walked out the door, one of the women in the bank building screamed um, because she looked down and somebody had smelled smoke and fire, and she looked down, and there were footprints on the carpet where the carpet was melted and, and was, was melting away. They quickly, somebody yelled and called 911. Nobody knew what was going on, but they were pretty sure maybe a, a fire was starting or something was wrong inside the bank building. Meanwhile, Frank had gone out to get inside his car. When he went to get inside his car, as he entered the car, he went to move his right foot across, and his right foot stuck on the rubber mat, and as he pulled it across, the rubber mat was melting underneath his foot. He jumped out of the car like, what in the world is wrong with my car? And, and, and stepped back from the car like, maybe there's something wrong with my car. At this point, he heard a fire truck that was pulling up to the bank building, and he said when he saw the fire truck, all of this in interviews released, as he saw the fire truck, he thought, boy, just in time, because I, I think I got an issue with my car. And he said they were running in and out of the bank building, and he stopped one of the firemen and said, listen, I think there's a problem with my car, too. The fireman had just enough wits about him to try to put two and two together when he saw the rubber mat melted, and he'd seen the footprints in the bank building. He said, sir, stand right here and don't move. He went over to the fire truck and he got a static field electricity meter and he brought it over to Frank and held it up to Frank. You know what he discovered? Frank's nylon jacket rubbing against his wool sweater. Frank was full of 40,000 volts of static electricity. 40,000 volts. The fireman said that they took his jacket and they hung it literally at the firehouse on a line outside and they said it was snap crackling and popping all night now how many of you are thinking how could he walk around with 40,000 volts of static electricity and be completely unaware not realize what he's housing or carrying how many of you are thinking that right now like a bunch of us are thinking how, how would that be possible so I ask you how is that possible for you to walk around with more than 40,000 volts of love and joy and peace and 
all the things that God is that's housed in you, and you're completely unaware as your feet move about, that when you move about, he's housed in you, and as you are moving, you're leaving a trail that you're completely oblivious as much as Frank Kluwer was oblivious to his trail. You don't understand. Some of you have vicariously realized that you have seen certain people, whether they were a teacher you had in school or a a particular person where you could kind of tell. In your head, you thought, I bet they're a Christian. I bet they're somebody who's close to God. There were people that that were in your life that you kind of sniffed it. It It's like you sensed that they were people who were close to God. There was something unusual about them. Do you know you're sniffable too? I had one of our former students of our young adult program. He eventually went to a Muslim land where he was serving as what you would call a missionary. And it was a restricted access country. So the best he knew to do, because they also had bugs around where they'd listen to people, people's conversations. So he would often take people on walks to the beach. One particular guy he'd been taking walks on the beach with um, had to leave for a business trip, and he'd left the country for a month, and when he came back, he wanted to get together with our former student, uh, one of my friends, uh, who I write about in the Plan A book, and and they took another walk on the beach. And as they were walking on the beach, he said, um, so uh, he said his name, uh, Jason, uh, I met a guy in that other country who smells like you. And Jason said, I'm sorry, what? you what? He said, I met, a, I met somebody. He smelled like you. Now, this is another country, and, and, and my friend said, you know, I thought maybe I'm missing the translation, you know, language-wise, like smells like me, like I, I, somebody who smells like me. And he said, I don't wear any cologne, and I don't wear any special soap. Like, I don't understand what you're talking about. He said, no, no, no. He, he just, he smells clean and Like, there's light, and, well, you know, Scripture tells us, don't you know you're the aroma of Christ? Scripture teaches us that you're the aroma of Christ. To some, you're the aroma of death because it reminds them that they're perishing, and others, it's the aroma of life. There is a uniqueness. Frank Kluwer's walk through Warrnambool, Australia, is not unique. People who house the living God, there's something powerful and There are people who would even say it's sniffable. Not with your nostrils. There's something you sense about those people or those players, and then suddenly when you have words, something in you goes, ah, I knew it. How did you know it? Because we were all made by God who is spirit, and God has given, I believe, every person this this sense of being able to have discernment. If you're at your outline, let's just talk about God's desire for his children. What, where, where Frank was getting all of this static electricity was a source different than your source. Your source, and that's why people ask us, like, what, what is Forge? And we get to have a conversation not about an organization. We get to have a conversation about God. We say, well, God described himself kind of as a as a forge, you know, what a forge is, you know, it's, he described himself as a consuming fire, 
You know, when you get near him, you, you kind of get warmed near a fire. You, you, you know, there's beauty and color and shape in a fire, but there's also warmth. And, and in the fire, that's where the heat of that fire helps to shape things and mold things. And so when we get close to God, God begins to shape our lives. When you get close to God, you're getting close to your power source. I had a friend I was talking to at a campground when all of a sudden my friend wasn't focused on me anymore. My friend was looking behind me. I don't know if this has ever happened to you before, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, well, I don't know what you're looking at, but I'm, I'm the one talking to you right now. <laughs> and suddenly, without warning, he grabbed me and threw me off to the side, and he went running straight past me, jetting so fast. And I, I thought, where is he? And he was running toward, he had seen behind me a little boy who somehow had gotten a hold of a live electrical wire that was coming from the power source supposed to be connected to a concession trailer. And my friend, instead of grabbing hold of the little boy and trying to pull him loose, he threw all his body weight up against him and he threw him off into the ground. Now, why, why didn't he grab hold of him to try to pull him loose? Yeah, absolutely. The power coming from the power source would come straight through that, even that little boy, and connect with him. We're connectors. We're connectors. Put your right hand in the air as high as you can get it. That's, that's as high as you can get your right hand in the air. That's as high as you can get your right hand in the air. Oh, Nick, Nick's got his hand higher than yours. You're, you're getting close, but, but you know, I, I'll bet you could get your hand higher than his. I bet you could. Look, look at her. She's getting her hand higher than his. Now, now I want to I wanna pause us for a minute. Everybody have a seat. Put your hand down. I, wanna, I want you to think about it. He thought outside the box and thought, I bet I could get my hand a little higher. The directions didn't change. Put your right hand in the air as high as you can get it. But he eventually went, I, I bet I could get my hand higher. And Kelly thought, I, I, I bet I could get my hand a little higher. You know, she could maybe, I, I'm not going to do that. But. <laughs> when Jesus was asked what matters most, because he knew we were connectors, and the very thing he was doing he wanted us to do, he said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Could you love him a little bit more? Could you love him a little bit more? I wonder if you could love him a little bit more. You know what? I watched you. You looked around at each other. I think my hand's about as high as everybody else's hand. I don't, I don't see it. Until one got out of his seat. But when Jesus said, love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, beg the question, could I love him a little bit more? Could I love him a little bit more? Because my best deliverable to my neighborhood, my best deliverable to strangers, my best deliverable to anybody is Whatever I'm getting from the power source, the forge, the, the love of God, the power of God, the goodness of God, everything that I get, I get from him. Now, you remember last night when we did the L? So your feet are what deliver because your feet are moving, but this is the first part of the equation. You and I are connectors to him. That's why Jesus said two things matter. He said, love God with everything in you. Could I love him a little bit more? Could I love him a little bit more? That's the best gift you're going to give this world is your intimacy with God. Could I love him a little bit more? 
so that then my deliverable is more of him. Let's go to, uh, so that's your up close vertical. You want to be up close vertically to God. Can I love him a little bit more? Can I get closer to God? That's a lifelong pursuit. You don't get to the point where you go, okay, I've arrived. No, you, you, this is a continued, can I love him a little bit more? Can I love him a little bit more? You live with this as a passion. You live with this as a purpose. Can I love him a little bit more? Because my best deliverable is him. And then God desires his children to be, let her be, at arm's length, horizontally. That's why, Stan, I love the fact that you've asked the question, so if I live a somewhat reclusive monastic life, where, where and how can my delivery occur? That's a right question to ask because Jesus said, this is the first and greatest commandment, love God with all your everything. And then he said, the second, love your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? Right now, my neighbor's Nick because my feet just moved. But now my neighbor's Shelly because my feet just moved. Now I'm coming for you, Nathan. I'm your neighbor now. My feet just moved. As your feet are moving through the day, that's his opportunity. And he said, love your neighbor. I just am trying to redefine neighbor for you. Neighbor is not the house address that's next to your house. Neighbor is whoever your feet are near in a moment. Whether you're at the gym, whether you're in the long line at Walmart and you're going, oh, how does this happen that they do price checks every time I get in a line? Look at the people around you. It actually may be on purpose. Who is this person who's holding all this sick medicine in their arms? Who's actually in front of you in line? Hey, is everything okay at your house? Can't help but notice that you've got a lot of medicine there. Is everything okay? No, everything's not okay. We're, we're fighting a pretty big fight at our house right now. We have a terrible sickness going on. Wow. Oh, maybe we're in line together for a reason. I'll be, I'll be praying for you. I am so sorry for what you're going through. I'm a praying person. I'll be praying for you and your family. Uh, your feet are in that line. What I'm telling you is your neighbor is constantly changing. And even your neighbor can be a stranger. Um, so, and then heart forward. Um, let me tell you what heart forward as love in the middle, children. Um, heart forward means I don't hold my heart back because I don't know you because you're a stranger. There are people all around us who not only feel invisible, but when you see them, do they feel the love of God poured out through your heart through the Holy Spirit? The love of God may be to share a fishing rod with them. It might be Bob, my woodworker friend, who said, you know, I've had guys who've wanted to learn how to fix or build things, and now I invite them to my workshop, and I keep asking God, how do you need to love this guy because I don't know what he's been through? How do you need to love this guy through me? And he said, sometimes it's me getting over there helping them with their project. Sometimes it's me caring about their grandchild when actually I want to talk about my own grandchildren. But he said, as I listen and I, I say, I'll be praying for your grandkid, that's a big deal. And I ask him the next time, he said, that's love in action because this guy doesn't have anybody else who cares about his grandkids. And that's become a way that I'm getting to pray for him and his grandkids. So heart forward means just allow yourself to be love in the middle. Um, I'd, 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 I'd suggest you put a little scripture out beside that. I pray this often, Romans 5.5. 5. Romans 5.5 5 says, the love of God 
is poured into our heart by the Holy Spirit. So um, cup your hands. This is what I, we did earlier. I pray this way a lot before God. I'll just sometimes say, in all honesty, I don't really love this person, God. Like, I'm, I'm at zero in my love meter inside for this person. This is, this is a hard person to work with. This is a hard neighbor to have. This is a, I wish this person wasn't in my family, you know? So, Lord, I don't have a lot in my love tank, but you're the supplier. And this whole thing of, could I love you more? Well, pour into my cup because there's another part of the L and I don't have what it takes. Do you remember Jesus praying even from the cross? You know, praying, praying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. And the next thing you know from the cross, you know, there's, a, there's one guy cursing him, but he's got enough love in his heart that the other guy starts having a conversation. That's why I love this little cross that one of your guys made. And there's light on this side of the cross because Jesus was actually loving the neighbor on the cross. He hadn't been with that neighbor before, but the one next door on the cross next door is crying out. And Jesus begins to have a conversation with the guy on the cross next to him. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. What was that? Not just caring about his own pain and suffering, but caring about the guy next door to him. I'm just telling you that love in the middle is a heart forward. It's not just saying, boy, it's too bad that guy's suffering too. It's what can I do to help? This is probably worth writing in your notes. Sympathy says, I'm sorry. That's what sympathy says. I'm sorry. And that's okay. It's good to say, I'm sorry. But compassion, that's what if you recycle through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John over and over again, you'll run into the word compassion. Even what we read last night um, in Matthew 9, and filled with compassion. Compassion, you'll see with Jesus. Compassion's different than sympathy. Compassion says, I'm sorry, what can I do to help? I'm sorry, what can I do to help? So Jesus didn't just feel sympathy for the guy on the cross next door to him. It was, what can I do to help? And they began having a life-giving, eternally life-giving conversation. Um, so, so it's important for you to know that heart forward, your love in the middle, what can I do to help? Compassion is what marked Jesus. It's what marks us. What can I do to help? So number two, full heads, full heads but empty hearts are not his plan. In other words, you have a physically beating heart because that's why you're sitting here breathing. You actually have a heart. Uh, you know, remember, what, what was it? Wizard of Oz, somebody was needing a heart. Remember this? Um, you know, Tin Man, there you go. Tin Man needed a heart. You know, you've met some people, you go, man, you're, you're the Tin Man person, like, you need a heart. There's a heart in there. It just needs jumped, you know, like jumper cabled. Uh, and I, I have a friend, actually, um, who just passed last week that endured a hundred times of paddles in the pr process of him trying to come about. And his wife finally was saying, you know, Tony, do you, do you, do you want to still fight? And, and his message to her uh, in ICU was, I still want to fight. Keep trying to get my heart going. Keep trying to get my heart going. Sometimes, uh, you know, Paul talked about the flesh being weak. Um, sometimes we need God to really help our hearts. So, you know, the love of God is poured into our heart by the Holy Spirit. Full heads, but empty hearts are not his plan. What am I saying about that? I want to tell you, look at me. 
There's a whole lot of people who have a ton of information in their heads, and they're doing this to everybody. They're doing this to everybody. We were never called to be information brokers. We are called to be heart up close, God's heart up close. And then we can speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Most people don't want to know what you know until they know how much you care. Most people don't want to know what you know until they know and have sniffed how much you care. Compassion says, what can I do to help? So it's, it's really an opportunity for him to help us know our hearts and to fill our hearts with his love. His plan is not that we are mere information brokers. We are made in God's image, let her be. His desire is for us to be loving people, letting love set the course of our daily action. God desires laborers who will follow Jesus' example and... Let's look up Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. I love this. This is a life verse for me. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, such a good passage. But there's a trick question I'm going to ask you. So look at this passage very carefully. It tells us to be imitators of God as dearly loved children and what? Live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So look at that verse carefully and tell me, who was Christ loving on the cross? Who was Christ loving on the cross? Tell me. Us. You all contented with that answer? Look at it again. Bob says he was loving God. What, why do you say that? Oh, <laughs> did you see that? Because it says, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Who was Christ loving on the cross? Look at me. Look at me. He was doing both. The very thing he said, I can sum up all the commandments in this, these two things. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love that person near you in the moment. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ, watch me, loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Who was he loving on the cross? Simultaneously both. He was doing the very thing he told us. These two things matter most. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you remember even in the garden, you know, when he's praying, oh man, this is going to be so hard. Like, I, basically he's saying, I don't want to do this. This is going to be so hard to do this. And then finally he said, not my will, but thy will. I'll do this, this out of love for you. I'll demonstrate my love, not just for these sinners, but for you. I'll, I'll be love in the middle. I love the fact that we have this model to follow in this. So, so God desires laborers who will follow Jesus' example, and number, letter C is live a life of love. Live a life of love. Some of us want to be loved so much. It's like, I've never been loved. I can remember this as a, as a kid. You know, come on, I'm Dwight the Fright. So I remember, I remember everybody 
despised me. You know, it's like I left an energy trail everywhere and it wasn't a good one. You know, not only did my father and I have board meetings, but, you know, my teachers weren't real fond of me. And, and, and most, I just wanted life to be exciting, so I'd make it exciting, but it wasn't a good energy trail. And so I can remember one time sitting in the downstairs closet underneath the stairway where my mother had the vacuum sweeper and stuff. And, and I just sat there in God's presence and I said, I don't know that anybody loves me. I don't think anybody ever will love me the way I need to be loved. So I'm going to raise my hands to you, God, because if anybody can, it would be you. Here I am, Dwight the Fright, unlovable. I'm sitting in front of you. I can remember sitting there in this closet like, I need to be loved, but I'm not very lovable. So God, if anybody could love me, it'd be you. What I can tell you, and you'll, you'll recognize a couple of them in the planning book, I can tell you who some of the first people were who were God's representative ambassadors to me. One of them was the peanut butter lady I write about in Plan A, who saw past all of my indiscretions and all my difficulties and all my energy and saw a person to be loved. I want to encourage you that for some of us who have felt a need to be loved beyond how we're loved, Jesus deserved to be loved so much more and better than he was. But he pressed through. And he loved and loved and loved and loved. Where did he get his fuel? Here. Let's talk about it. Um, he got his, his fuel. God, the incarnate word to us in the flesh, modeled a planty love-in-the-middle lifestyle. He was being loved by God the Father. Um, so let's, let's go to love in the middle, high-impact living. God has always wanted to be up close to his creation. He's always wanted to be up close to his creation. And he sent Jesus into the world as Emmanuel. And you told me you know the answer to this next one. What is Emmanuel? God with us. God with us. So Jesus' last recorded earthly words were, I am with you always. Every time you get in the car, every time your feet are moving, every time you're standing in line at the store or you're, you're walking into the gym or you're walking into work, every time you're sitting at your computer, guess who's with you according to the scriptures? He said, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. You're not alone. When Jesus returned to heaven, God sent us the Holy Spirit to always be present with us and in us. This is that passage I've quoted several times. Do you not know you're the temple of God's spirit? He lives within you. How does God get up close to others in our spheres of influence? If God wants to get up, you know, there have been times where I've kind of given God an assignment. God, you need to take her on. God, you need to take care of him. You know, like, you know, and God's going, yeah, and I'm housed in you. So how am I going to get to them? How about you just kind of get up close? Well, then, God, you're going to have to fill my heart with your love because I don't have any. You know, I'm empty. So, God, here I am. Pour your love into my heart by the Holy Spirit so that I can be up close and be a better ambassador representative than I feel like being right now. So, so I love this, that God gets up close to others in our spheres of influence through us, through us. One of my neighbors and these... Nathan, these aren't being recorded, are they? They are. Okay, so I'll, I'll protect the innocent by rearranging this story a little bit. So um, uh, one of the things, though, that all my neighbors know that's unique about our family is we, we have, for decades, 
walked our neighborhood at Christmas. I know we're ridiculous, but we have walked our neighborhood at Christmas. My wife bakes, remember she bakes, so she makes baked goods and she makes bags for everybody. And then we carry, we got a bunch of jingle bells. Um, we carry jingle bells. We walk our neighborhood up to every door and we ring those bells outside their door and we start with jingle bells. When they get to the door, we sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Let heaven and nature sing. Oh, we're smiling, by the way, the whole time. Let heaven and nature sing. Let heaven and nature sing. Can I tell you what happens in our neighborhood? Oh, my word. The, the, the Iranian family, they stand there and weep the whole time. Weep the whole time because the presence of Jesus came to their door. The Chinese family, so, so overwhelmed. Like, they keep bowing to us and they want to hand us stuff. And, you know, they, they don't know. We didn't come to get stuff. We came to give stuff. So my wife's trying to pass the baked goods into them. The little old couple who she's living with a tyrant at her house. He's an awful guy to live with. And, and she just reaches out and hugs every single one of us like we're life to her on the journey that she's on. One after another, it's just wild and crazy. Some of them now have presents sitting by their door waiting for us. But one door is our next to impossible door. And it's next door. The lights are not on. My son will say, Dad, nobody's there. I say, son, that's not true. I think I saw him pull in after work. Ring the doorbell. Jingle, 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 jingle. And we'd wait until I thought I saw a little discrepancy with the people. Okay, let's start singing. Joy to the world. We sang two extra songs at his house. You know why? So he did open his door, but it'd take him forever. He'd never turn the light on. We would stand on his porch in the dark, and he'd be weeping. Weeping. Eleven years. Eleven years. On the eleventh year, we gave him an invitation card inside the baked goods, come to our house on Christmas, because we realized he didn't have anywhere to go. We knew his comings, you know your comings and goings of the next door neighbors. He never responded. Got to Christmas, my wife set up an extra plate at the table, hoping he would come, and he didn't show up. So we put two plates full of food together, and my kids took it over to him. When, uh, when they came back, I said, how long did it take? And, and my son said, not long at all. He saw food, I think, in our hands, and the door flew open. Um, <laughs> Two nights later, my telephone rang after 10 o'clock at night. It was my next door neighbor, 11 years in. Dwight, um, sorry, it's kind of late, uh, but I know you're up because I can see your lights on over there. <laughs> yeah, we're up, we're up. Well, okay, so I'm going to be talking right now, and uh, I'm, I got a lot to say. So be ready, because um, like you, you've never heard me talk before, so I'm going to say a lot of stuff. First, first I want to tell you thank you for all the... No, first, first tell your wife the food was really good. I stretched it out over two days, and it was all delicious. I liked it all very much, and I'll, I'll send the empty plates over um, soon. 
But um, when talking about your Christmas cards, like all the Christmas cards you've given me through the years, like I, you know, your family pictures are always good, but I like the one actually five years ago. It was really your best one. That's the one that's on my refrigerator in my kitchen. But I, the, like this one's this year wasn't as good as the one five years ago. You should, you should do, you go to that place you did it five years ago. That's really the best. I'm thinking this is the weirdest conversation. He goes on to say, um, so, so I know that we haven't really talked that much, but you're the best neighbors that any guy could ever have. And I can't, I can't tell you, I've told, I've told my, my uh, friends in Texas where I moved here from that I have the most amazing neighbors ever um, that live right next door to me. And I'm thinking, you, you happen to know that we're like, you know, we just kind of, you know, we can't seem to get anywhere with you. Then he went on. So um, I know you guys care about me a lot. Well, yes, we do, Eric. So, um, well, I've been to the doctor, and he told me I got to get my health together. I'm got to stop smoking and drinking, and I got to I got to figure this out. So, like, I know you go to the gym because I see you coming and going. So, like, wherever you go, like, where is that? Where do you go? I told him the name of my gym. He said, so, so if I get a membership there, could I go with you? Like, that's really kind of my private space. So it's like, oh, you know, like I. I love my time, you know, and it is like, oh man, I got a, I got a supply and answer, like right now. Uh, sh- sure, Eric. Inside, I'm like, God, help me, help me, help me right now, help me right now. He said, so, so when are we gonna go? I said, well, I don't know. Uh, uh, six o'clock tomorrow morning would be when I'm gonna go next. Okay, I don't know if I can pull it off that quick. I got to get a membership and. I gotta get Jim. How about, how about two days from now? I said, two days from now, that'll be fine. I wanna tell you, it's more story than I can tell you right now, but, but what I wanna take us back to was I could not get over the fact that we must connect up close with others in order to connect God with them. And my times with my neighbor at the gym started turning into a relationship. He came back one time and he said, so I want to invite you to come into my house. Nobody's ever seen the inside of my house. I said to my wife later that night, honey, he has no furniture. He has no furniture. And our pictures are on his refrigerator. Oh my word, we hardly know this guy. We know his name and our pictures are on his refrigerator. To bring you full circle, um, it developed into an extraordinary time of getting to know Eric and Eric allowing me to get to know him. We became friends. He began to lean in. And eventually, we were able to help him get restored with his family, restored to his origins, restored to God. The first picture I got from Texas when he moved back was, was... I said to my wife, why did he send me a picture of himself? Like, I know what he looks like. Why did he send me? She said, look at it. He's wearing a Kristen Fish belt. That's what that's about. He wants you to notice his new belt buckle. It's a Kristen Fish. I said, oh, I called him right away. Eric, guess what a cool belt. That's awesome. He said, well, I told you when I got to Texas, the first thing I was going to do was find a church. Jesus said two things matter. Loving God, what makes a great, let me ask you a quick question. 
Quick question. How many of you, it matters a lot to you to have a pastor who loves God? Like your whole life, you've, you've, you've wanted a pastor who loves God. Like you, that's a big deal to you that your pastor loves God. Like, like how about if I said to you, I could give you a pastor who has three degrees, he has a doctoral degree, and he's been to two seminaries. If I could give you one of those, but you don't know whether he loves God, are you interested? How many of you, it's a big deal for your pastor to love God? Like a lot. Why? You have to tell me why that's a big deal to you. Why is that a big deal to you? What? Because you love God. Well, you love God, so why does it matter if he does or doesn't? You want your pastor to love God. Why do you want him to love God? So he can witness to others so they can know God. So it won't be statistical, okay. Is that what you said? Egotistical, because it kind of keep him... Keep him on the notch he's supposed to be on. God's God. What, what else? He's going to take the church down the wrong direction. Yes, Stan? What's that? He's the shepherd of the sheep. He's the shepherd of the sheep, but what, what does that have to do with him loving God? he doesn't love God, he can't love people. Love comes from God. Everyone who loveth is born of God and knows God. Scripture tells us, you know, that that is absolutely what enables him to love the sheep, care for the sheep. No wonder Jesus asked Peter at the very beginning, you know, do you love me? Then feed my lambs. Do you love me? And take care of my sheep. Yeah, so, so you're telling me it's a big deal. Like, did it suddenly become even a bigger deal to you as we've, we've entertained the question? Like, I want a pastor who loves God. I don't care if he's been to three seminaries, and I don't even care if he's PhD, doctor, so-and-so. I want somebody who loves God. How many of you, you want a pastor who loves God? So here's the question for you. If that's the kind of pastor you want, do you recognize that for many people that you're around, they don't have a clergyman pastor yet. You're it. You're their first minister. Their first one willing to bring the love of God to them. The first one to care for. As Jesus said to Peter, feed my lambs or take care of my sheep. Who was Peter? Dr. So-and-so? No, he was a regular, ordinary dude who just knew how to catch fish, but Jesus taught him how to love people, love God and love people. So in the outline here, what makes a great pastor also makes an impactful kingdom labor in everyday mainstreams of life. This is in bold for a reason. The greatest gift you'll ever give the world is your intimacy with God. That's the greatest gift you're going to give your everyday world. I like you a lot, by the way. I'm having so much fun. Like, I'm wishing you didn't, your church wasn't so far from my side of Kansas where I live, because you guys are fun. But can I tell you something? As great as you are, the world doesn't need us. They need him. But the more we've been with him, the more he shows up where we show up. Like Frank the Kluwer. Kluwer. You know, the more we've been with him, the more he shows up where we show up. So I love this, that what 
the greatest gift you're going to give this world is your intimacy with God. It's what you want in a pastor, but it's what people around you, in your apartment complex, your neighborhood, in your workplace, they need you to be that same way. The more you spend time with him, the more he'll show up where you show up on the everyday scenes, the everyday scenes of your life, your home, your, your workplace, your school, your social locations, the along-the-way places. We don't compartmentalize him. He is with us always, and as our feet move, so does he with us. You'll become a, letter C, you'll become a mobile church. A mobile church, because he's housed in you. So when you move about, he's going, yes, yes, yes. I'm going to have opportunities over there where she's going, because there she goes, and I'm housed in her. So he's excited because, listen, this is worth writing in your notes. Buildings don't have feet. Buildings don't have feet. People do. That's why he reestablished a plan that was a mobile ministry plan that, that was, don't you know, you're the temple of God's spirit. So his idea was to be able to make sure that every person out there, as Jesus would get outside the walls of the synagogue to where they were, that every person out there would have people like us who would move out into these arenas as mobile churches, a life which houses God's presence and brings his purposes up close to others. Many people won't know how much you know until they know how much you care, and that's what begins to open the conversational door. Letter D, we all have God-given talents and spiritual gifts to share with others, but what people need far more than us and our gifts, far more than us and our gifts, is God. The more we've been with him, the more he shows up wherever we show up. They need his presence. They need his grace. They need his power and his love. And the more you've been with him, the more he will show up everywhere you show up. That's, that's Acts 4.13. Remember when they said to the guy who was the beggar, silver or gold we don't have, but we have Jesus. And they gave him the gift of Jesus. You become a spiritual appetizer, food served before the main course, a sample meant to stimulate the appetite for him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And when they're near you, they're, you know, they're salivating, they're beginning to taste the goodness of God who's housed in you. They're tasting. There's some little extra thing you do. You help them with this or you help them with that. And what was that? What was that? And sometimes you're a co-laborer with somebody else because somebody else did that type of thing and you're both full of the light of Jesus. You're both full of the love of God and, and they're trying to connect dots because, because it's apparent to them that there's something more than just a fellow human that's near them. Let me help you know how to stay in tune and, and connect it up. The first thing you need to know is time with God, not just about God, but with God is imperative. When we say the greatest gift you're going to give your world is your intimacy with God, that is not judged by what your perfect church attendance was throughout life. I've been with a lot of people who have attended church, but this connection isn't there. They know people at the church because their grandma and grandpa went to that church and their parents went to that church and they know the people of the church. But this connection doesn't happen. They know all the horizontal activities of the social gathering and the space and place. That's where we want to beware that 
that what we are are people who spend daily time with God. Daily time with God. I want to spend daily time with God. You know, I don't know how I would help people know anything other than your Bob that spells it with one O. Unless I spent time, Bob, with you, and I told you a little bit about my life, but you started telling me things about you. And, and the next thing I know, if I'm, if I'm with Ron over here, he might not know a lot about you, but I, I could start telling about you because I've spent time with you. I wasn't in the same room with you. Now we're spending time together and we're, we're getting to know one another. The only way I can help somebody else know Bob is to know Bob myself. So when we get to this daily time, let me help you with extended dates. This afternoon after lunch, I'm going to help you know how to have a date with God. You are going to have so much fun. Oh, my word. Where will you start knowing how you and God can have dates together, like cool dates, like doing some of your, your things that you love to do, eating some of the foods you like to eat? I mean, when we talk about dates, you're just going to go, what? Why didn't I know that existed? I don't know, because Luke 5, 16 says Jesus did it often. Luke 5, 16 says Jesus often slipped away to be alone with God for these kind of dates. We'll talk about them this afternoon. There's a little booklet back there on the table called Is God Waiting for a Date? What about abiding with God? What does that mean, abide with God? Do you know what that promises you according to John 15, 5? It promises that you will bear much fruit. Not a little, much fruit. When you abide with, somebody tell me what you think abide with means. Dwell. What's that? Dwell. Dwell, dwell with, being with, live. live. Yeah, stay tight. Uh, I've had some young people say, stay tight with, uh, hang with, uh, dwell, abide, whatever the language is. The idea, and I, I want to really strongly recommend, and, and Stan, Stan will probably sign up right away. He'll be the first one because he's a reader. But there's a tiny little booklet that I recommend highly, and I'm sorry I don't have any on the table. It's called, and it's right here in your notes, Practicing God's Presence. And the author uh, name isn't listed here, so put the author's name. It's Robert Elmer. Robert Elmer, E-L-M-E-R. Um, have any of you in the room read the old 400-year-old classic called The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence? A couple of you have read this book. Powerful book. Many people highly impacted by this book whose names you would recognize. In the last century, Robert Elmer took the components of that and put it into today's reader's English version. In my top five books besides the Bible is practicing God's presence. Because I really think the best gift I give you is my intimacy with him. And practicing his presence is how I stay. Frank Clure. How I stay grounded and intimate with him. Thank you. Good job, Nick. So, uh, uh, let's go to serving with God. Don't just help in the kitchen at the church. Don't just help the children. Do it with God. Everything you're doing, do it with him. Uh, make sure when you're practicing God's presence, when you get an opportunity to serve, I love all the examples Jesus gives us, even in John 21, when he's putting together the breakfast food for all these hungry fishermen. And he had to build the fire first to fix the food on. And so 
you know, who is this? I thought he's the leader of the kingdom. Oh, he and God are out here fixing this beautiful fire for them to pull up to, fixing this food, because this is going to be a place to love. I can only imagine that as Jesus is doing this with God, he's looking so forward to being reunited with he and God are going to have this this beautiful time with these guys who are going to be launched from this love breakfast. And he's doing it with God. Number two, um, just put this down, let love tell you what to do. Let love tell you what to pray, say, write, or... Let me explain what that means. When our daughter was born, she was our firstborn, and when our daughter was born, um, I was so excited. I didn't know at that time how a daughter can rap, oh my word, a dad is like, you, you just become a mess, you know, like this daughter is just able to, and I had buddies who had daughters who said, so when are you going to start dating your daughter? Like, you know, you want to date your daughter because you want to make it really hard for some dude later on that your daughter knows what a real date is and she knows what a real man is and you want to date your daughter as she's growing up so she really knows what a, a real man is. So they were challenging me, and I thought, well, you know, she's little right now. I hold her, but I don't know, like, when, when is it going to be the appropriate time to date my daughter? Well, finally, she's a toddler, and, and my buddy said, it's time. It's time for you to start some daddy-daughter dates. So I scheduled it on the calendar, and, and our first one was um, scheduled. My wife knew when it was scheduled, and she was looking forward to having the evening off. And, and uh, But I, all day I couldn't figure out, what do you do with a toddler, like, What's a date look like? You're not going to go to a romantic restaurant, you know? You're not going to, you know, I couldn't figure out, you're not going to go to a movie. What am I going to do with this? And I couldn't figure out what to do. All day long, I couldn't figure out what to do. I get home, and I'm kind of him-hawing around, and my wife finally said, I thought you were going to go on a date with Dara, our daughter. I said, well, I, I am. She was still, well, you're, you're, you should have left about 30 minutes ago. What's, what's the delay? I said, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. That was my big quandary. I don't know what to do. My wife looked straight back at me and said, I'll tell you what to do. You go to the mall, and you look in her little face. Look in her little face, and love will tell you what to do. Look in her little face, and love will tell you what to do. And I thought, well, I got I to gotta go. I don't know how that's going to work. but So I went out to get in my Jeep. She's in the car seat in the back. And I look in the rearview mirror, and she looks worried because she realizes mom isn't getting in the vehicle. And so I look at her little face, and love told me what to do. I need to start making this happy and okay. So I, I, she loved music, so I just started singing to her, um, Daddy is your boyfriend. And, and she sang back, and I am daddy's girlfriend. And, and I sang, and, and we go on dates, and she sang back, and we have fun, fun. And I sang back, fun, you know. And so by this time, we're pulling out of the drive, and we keep singing this, Daddy is my boyfriend, I am Daddy's girlfriend, and we go on dates, and we have fun. And she made sure we sang the word fun three times straight, like, this is going to be fun, fun, fun. My daughter has a daughter of her own now, and she, if she walked in here, she would sing that song with me right now. Knows it so well through the years. We get to the mall, 
We get out, and I'm thinking, okay, I need to keep looking at her little face. And she's been here before. Apparently, she's been with her mother. So we, we walk in the hallway, and she, I looked at her little face. She heard the puppy dogs at the pet store. And I, I could look at her little face. I knew what to do. And she was starting to toddle in that direction. We get to the pet store, and she's looking in the window. She keeps watching this one. And I look at her. I know what to do. We're going to get that one uh, out. Not, I'm not going to buy it. I'm not going to buy it, but we're going to try it out, you know? So, so we go in the little area where you try out puppies, and we're sitting in there playing with the puppy, and we're having, I'm looking at her face, and she's having a great time, when all of a sudden the puppy scratches her, and now I look at her face, and she's not happy. She's crying, and I'm going, okay, here's your puppy back. Uh, you know, glad we're not going to have to buy that thing, and here we go, and we're walking out, and she saw the toy store across the hallway. She's starting to move, and I, I look at her little face. I'm going to follow her, and I'm kind of one step ahead. I'm watching her face, and she knows exactly where to go. She goes back to the little girl's section. She's in the kitchen section, and she sits down, and she's playing with the kitchen thing. So I sit down, and we start playing with the kitchen thing, and all of a sudden, she smells Mrs. Fields' cookie shop downstairs at the mall. I don't know what. They have industrial fans, I'm sure, that blow that all over the mall. And she stands up. And I know, I can look at her face, she wants a cookie. Let's go get a cookie. So we're walking toward the cookie and she sees him throwing, throwing uh, coins in the water fountain and I can tell, I'm looking at her, she, she wants to do that. So I reached in my pocket, I had some change and she's throwing it in. And then, then we have our cookies and we're, oh my word, I'm so late, I'm gonna be in so much trouble with my wife. Like, oh my goodness, I didn't even know so much time had passed. Like this date I didn't know how to do, suddenly I did know how to do it. I didn't know I knew how to do it. I, I just kept looking at her little face. We're walking out, I'm trying to hurry her along and she sees one of those little photo booths down the, the little hallway walking out of the mall and it's flashing and so she pulls the curtain up and I say, no, 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 you can't do that. And then I thought, she doesn't understand what's going on, so maybe we should get a little date picture. So waited for that couple to get out we got in the photo booth and got four little black and white photos and waited for them to come out. And I came home bearing, you know, like, hey, I got to... My wife said, you're late, you're late. And I said, yes, I know I'm late. She said, well, why are you late? And I said, because I looked in her little face and love told me what to do. And there wasn't hardly enough time. I think there are a lot of times where we worry about I don't know what to do when actually love would inform when the love of God is poured into our heart by the Holy Spirit, he begins to help you know what's really going on. He knows what's really going on. He begins to inform. He begins to help you. So I would tell you that um, loving people let love tell you what to do, what to pray. Sometimes I'll sit there like, Lord, I don't know what to say. And suddenly I feel like he's putting the words in my mouth. I don't know what to write. I, it's going to be four sentences because I'm not a letter writer, God. What do I write? And the next thing I knew, I feel like his heart and my heart is moving the pen. How to express love in silence? Sometimes he tells me, you know what? They don't need words. They just need somebody to be with them. Would you just be with them? This is the hardest moment of their life and it, they're done with words. They just need somebody to be present. Love's telling you what to do. Be here. Yeah, but it's uncomfortable in the silence, but it's not to them, and it's not to me. Be with them. Help them know I'm here with them. Imperfect people, unworthy people, sin-soiled people, untrained people, fearful people can be loving people. 
finally, number three, where to deliver God's love. Where do we do it? I would tell you what we covered last night in the mainstreams, Jesus didn't wait for people to pursue him at synagogues. He attended. He attended the synagogue. We know he stood up and read the scriptures, the scroll, and uh, that he spoke, that he healed in the synagogue. So you're not off the hook. You know, ch- church is a very important thing. We don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. But what he modeled was most of the stories that you read didn't happen behind the four walls of the synagogue. They happened out in the main streams where people were at. Jesus met people where they lived, where they worked, and where they went about daily life. Where they went about daily life. That's where they were going to encounter truth and love and the power 40,000 volts plus. Now let's talk quickly about messes and meal tables before we finish. Let's talk about messes. Jesus ministered in what I would call the mud puddles of human need. The mud puddles of human need. There are a bunch of other guys standing around with stones in their hands ready to do away with her. I'll tell you, when all the other dudes have an intended action that they're set up to do, what will you do in that moment? What does love tell you what to do? This is a messy situation. We have people in our society today that they don't have nodular or tubular leprosy, but they walk around feeling like they're lepers, particularly to Christian people. Because as far as they know, Christian people would never be willing to be near them because they're not of the same type. They don't even think they're of the same caliber. And, And somewhere in their heart, they started hating us because they've never come to know Christ in us, which is the hope of glory, Scripture tells us. There are people who need to be able to tell how much we love and how much we care before we ever speak a word of truth. They've been used to all of these people. Now they need somebody who's willing to just get in the mess with them. Are you aware that as a Coloradan, most of you, you're not all natives. I mean, I've never been with one group in Colorado that everybody's a native. How many of you are non-natives? You weren't born in this state. But, so, but there's a bunch of us who've been learning the history. Those of you who are born here, maybe you know this. Did you know that in stagecoach days, did you know during the stagecoach era, they sold three classes of tickets for the stagecoach? They sold first-class tickets, second-class tickets, and third-class tickets. Did you know that? You, you don't know this? No. Wow, okay, so... What you need to know is they sold three, and they were priced very differently. Anybody want to guess how they got away with it? So let me tell you. First-class tickets, when they hit muddy, rocky terrain and everything got bad, the first-class tickets holders stayed inside the stagecoach where it was easy. But if you had a second-class ticket, you got out of the stagecoach and you walked because this terrain is messy and hard. Now, there were three classes of tickets. 
Some are sitting cushy inside the stagecoach. Some are walking beside. Anybody want to guess what the third class ticket holders did when it got messy? <laughs> yeah. If you were a third class ticket holder, you understood. You helped to make things happen. And you got in the mud. And you helped to move some of those rocks. And, and you got in the crud and the mud. My dear eventual friend who had been my 11-year neighbor, when we began to get to know each other, he shared the hard, ugly pieces of his life. It started with our first time where we were supposed to go to the gym, and I was wanting to make sure, because it was early morning, that I, I wasn't going to wait in vain for him in my driveway. So the night before, I said, um, 6 a.m. in the driveway, looking forward to it. Dwight. I wake up at 5 a.m. getting my stuff together, and I notice I have a text that came during the night. What? Oh, my word! My wife heard me. She woke up. So what, 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 what? She jumped out of bed like, you know, she, she wondered what was happening. I'm reading a, a word that doesn't usually appear on my screen. Um, it's not in my vocabulary. I know what the word is, and he has just used this word with me. What in the world? She said, honey, wh wh why do you think he wrote that to you? Like, what did you write to him? I said, I told him I'm looking forward to it. I told him I'd see you tomorrow morning looking forward to it. She looked back and she said, no, you didn't. Spell check got involved. It says, look, you fool, morning. I said, well, that's not even a complete sentence. He would know that that's a spell check issue, right? I went out and sat in my drive. I waited a long time. He never showed up. That afternoon when I got home from the office, I waited and waited and waited until he pulled in, and I went straight over before he could go hide in his house. And I said, hey, what happened this morning? He said, well, you called me a fool. I said, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. Look back at it. It was supposed to say looking forward to it. Spell check got involved. I don't know what I put in there that made it happen. He said, you didn't write that? And I said, Eric, look, it doesn't even say, it's not even a complete sentence. I don't, I don't write, look, fool, it. Like, he said, you better come in. And he tells me about the day when he came home from work to an empty house. His wife had taken the children, had all the furniture moved during the day, and left him a note that said, you fool. That had been 19 years earlier. And it had triggered the worst moment of his life. He shared a little bit that morning, and then the next day, we're standing in his driveway, and he said, and you know what else? I'll tell you what happened when I was a kid. And he starts going through the day his dad died. And he had just gotten home from school and he was accused by the rest of the family for not rescuing his dad's life that day because he didn't know what to do. He was 13 years old and couldn't figure out what to do. By this time, he's so angry. He's so angry, he's screaming, crying at me, standing outside in his driveway, screaming, crying at me. The top of his lungs until he runs out of everything 
And he just walks down the drive out to the external sidewalk, and I'm standing there thinking, I know every neighbor has got to be looking out their windows right now. Why is somebody screaming another neighbor like this in their driveway? It's messy. I stood there feeling like, I deserve better than this. We've been loving this guy for 11 years, bringing him food and singing Christmas songs and jingle bells and joy to the world. And I even am letting him be a part of my gym times, and that's my space. And, you know, part of me inside's going, I'm being honest with you, like, hey, I deserve better than this. What in the world? You're giving me this? You're screaming at me? Then, about the time I'm thinking this, he comes from the sidewalk up the drive like he's going to attack me. Walks straight at me. He's, and you know what else? And he goes into one other episode, a chapter from his life, screaming it at the top of his lungs because it's been in there so long, it's coming out vehemently. This time he didn't walk away. He just stood in front of me shaking. And I'm praying. Christ, who strengthens me? I didn't hold my hands out, but I was praying like crazy. God, I don't have what I need right now. This is messy. I felt like God said, why don't you tell him it was wrong and that I was hurting with him? Hey, what happened to you was so wrong. Yeah, I just want you to know, God's heart was hurting with you, too. My heart's hurting right now. Nobody deserves what you went through. I'm so sorry. How can I help? What can I do? Well, I don't know. I probably need to talk to somebody professional. I said, well, that might be a good idea, but for now, you got me. I'm glad you're talking. You've been carrying this a long time. Nobody should have to carry something like this alone. I'm sorry you've had to carry this so long alone. Jesus ministered in the mud puddles of human need, touched lepers, held snotty-nosed dirty kids, kids are dirty, my grandson, I get pictures from, from the Marine base where my son's serving today, and my grandson, every time I look at the picture, I zoom in to see his hands because they're always just full of dirt, you know? He, he found three new friends last week. They were little frogs that he'd found, and he doesn't understand how two of them died because he squeezed them too hard because he loved them too much. And You know, his hands are always into things. He's always wanting to share his food with me and put his food in my mouth because he loves his papa so much. And it's like, oh, man, this is going to... And I get sick every time I come home. I'm sick because my grandson loves me too much. But love gets in mud puddles of human need, and I just want you to know Jesus entered those mud puddles. Uh, finally, meal tables, Jesus met and ministered up close to people around meal tables. Most of you told me last night, you, you actually enjoy food. Um, we're about at the time where we're going to enjoy some food. Um, and uh, Jesus met and ministered up close to people around meal tables. Reexamine the life, the words, the discipleship training of Jesus. There was a lot going on at meal tables. Do you know that, that what he says in Revelation 3.20 is... A, 
I stand at the door. It's not like doorbell, like he just says, I, I stand at the door and knock. You know the rest of the verse, Revelation 3.20? If anybody will open the door, I'll come in, and what's it say? And I'll sup with him, and he with me, or I'll, I'll eat with him. What's he actually saying? He's saying, I'll see and stop and spend time with you. We'll be up close. Let's talk about meal tables for a minute. Why are meal tables so powerful? Why, why is this feeling a little more powerful right now than a couple minutes ago? It's intimate. We're up close. You know, if we were all of us in a living room, we, we might even sit at more of a distance. In a, but at a table, you really do get up close. Uh, something else we do at a meal table, it's not usually... Uh, done in 30 seconds. Hi, how are you? I'm fine. You know, you're sitting there for more than 30 seconds. So you're going to have conversation. at table. How many of you in the room, you learned your family stories at holiday meal tables when people hung around at the table and, and you learned, you know, all these stories of your family? How many of you learned family stories at meal tables? Yep, yep. Because we stay at... Do you know when I got on Southwest Airline last week, do you know what, what they served me of a water, and with it, a napkin. Why did, I guess they thought I was going to spill the water. You know what the napkin said? It said, Southwest Airlines started on a table napkin. What do they mean by that? Well, sometimes people sit at a table long enough, we not only share our stories, we share our ideas, we share thoughts with each other at tables, and the next thing you know, people get up from tables, and they say the world's best ideas, a lot of them were written first on table napkins because it's at a table where we exchange not only our stories, but our thoughts and our ideas and our hearts. I learned this from Jesus. Some of you are great mathematicians. How many of you typically, if you're able, you eat three meals a day? So we got quite a number of three meals a day. How, how many meals would that be in, an, in a year? That'd be how many... How many meals in a year? Come on, mathematician. Okay, it's over a thousand. Listen, I'm telling you, you got great ministry potential. Now you might be thinking, well, I don't have a lot of extra food. Well, you know, Jesus, Jesus validated something as simple as this, and it wasn't even bottled. He sat with one woman over water. Do you have any water? I, I'm, I'm thirsty. Let's Let's share water together. And over water, they slowed down enough to have a life-giving conversation. He focused on the one domino life in front of him. And eventually that one life went back to her village. And the whole Samaritan village was impacted by the woman he just had water with. As a young guy, before my wife came into, who's really good with food, came into my life. So my little neighbor next door to my single guy house, uh, Thelma was her name. Um, so you can tell we had an age discrepancy between us just from her name, Thelma. Um, she liked to keep track. When I was gone, she would keep track of who was in my, you know, who was in my drive. She, she, she was like, you know, she'd look out her window all the time at my house. And, and one time I was new to the neighborhood, so I was out there pulling things, and she came flying out her back door. Stop it, stop it, stop it. I said, what, 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 what? You are pulling up flowers that those other people planted there. Those are not weeds. They look like weeds at the beginning, but they're going to be beautiful if you leave them alone. 
Well, I found out that she and her husband used to have a flower shop in town. They knew all about flowers. They'd actually given some of those flower plantings to the people, and those things were sacred. And so I said, well, I don't know what I'm doing. Maybe you could help me. So she started coming over, and she'd manage over, over top. And I'd be down, and she'd, no, 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 that's a weed. No, pull that one up. No, that's a flower. Leave that. And, you know, so she was helping me out there. And, and, I, and, and, and uh, uh, we were starting to get to know each other. Next thing I know, one day I'm out mowing my lawn, and and Thelma's driving her big Buick uh, down the street, and I waved from the lawnmower, and she stopped her car right in the middle of the street. Um, she okay? Did she have a heart attack? She stopped in the middle of the street. I'm kind of mowing, watching. She stopped there, cause, I guess because I stopped and waved. Okay, maybe I'm supposed to do what? So, so I, I stopped the mower, and I walked across my yard to her car, and She's still sitting in the middle of the road. I said, Thelma, Thelma, why don't you pull, pull, pull off over here by the curb? Are you okay? No. I said, well, what's wrong? Well, you know, ever since my husband died and my son died, like, and now I read in the newspaper all these obituaries and my friends are dying. I lay over there in my house and I'm scared. I'm just thinking about it all the time now. Nobody needs me. I don't have anybody. I said, Thelma, you have me. I'm I'm your neighbor. You you watch my house when I'm gone. You tell me there was a gray car in there on Tuesday at at 3.30 in the afternoon. You tell me that there was a UPS delivery. You tell me everything. Like, I couldn't hire a security service better than you. Like, you're amazing, and look at my flowers. Like, there wouldn't be any flowers if it wasn't for you. You're telling me what to do, and and we're we're pulling it off. We're a team. I need you. Like, like, and, and I'm not kidding. Out of my mouth before I could even figure out what to do because she's crying at this point. I said, Thelma, um, wh- why don't you come for lunch today? And I thought, yeah, and what are you going to fix her for lunch? You don't know how to fix anything. <laughs> I do know how to fix peanut butter and jelly, but I thought that wasn't very sophisticated. She's kind of a fancy lady. And, and uh, she said, what time? And I said, I don't, I don't know. I'll be done mowing here in a little bit, and m- maybe about noon. Would that work? Okay, maybe 12.30. Give me another half hour. I might need it. I go into my kitchen, I'm standing there like, oh God, help me, I don't know what I'm doing, I don't know what I'm doing, there's an old lady coming for lunch, I don't even know how to fix food, and I fix, I know how to fix tuna fish, so I got a can of tuna fish, and I fixed, and then I remember my mom, she would cut, she would cut it on a diagonal so it looked fancier, you know, so I cut it on a diagonal, I was getting real proud of myself, and I put them out, and I had potato chips, so I put the potato chips, I'd seen this in a restaurant, put the potato chips in the middle, so I had two halves of tuna fish sandwich and potato chips, and I thought, I shouldn't just serve her water, I, I've, got, I've got instant iced tea, I can make her some iced tea, so I, you know, I'm a single guy, I had hardly nothing, I made iced tea, I didn't even have a table, I had TV trays, so I set out two TV trays, and the doorbell rings, and it's Thelma. And I've got, I've got lunch already, and we sit down, and I said, you know, it's, it's kind of simple, but it's, I, I don't know how to fix a lot, and I hope it's going to be okay. It'll be fine, she said. And, and she started reaching for it, and I thought, oh, no, 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 I did. I said, I said just, just a minute, before we eat, um, like I just got back from Central America, and um, the poverty was so great, and there's so many people who don't have food, and I'm just so grateful, Thelma, that you and I have food to eat like we have. Um, would it be okay with you if I just thanked God who enables us to have what we have? Could I just 
thank God for the food we have. That'd be fine. So I prayed a simple prayer. Thank you, God, that we have food to eat. I finished in Jesus' name, amen. And I looked up, ready to start, and her head was down. I don't know my word. I kept watching her. Her head didn't come up. I don't know where she's keeled over right in my house. Like she's, and I said, uh, I thought, oh, no, she doesn't know the prayer's over. She doesn't know what to do. So I said, uh, uh, and, and in Jesus' name, amen, all done, ready to eat. I'm not kidding. That's what I said. And she looked up, and when she looked up, yeah, she was crying. She said, how do you know how to do that? And I said, probably because I'm your neighbor. Because you don't need to sit in your house scared at night. And we're probably neighbors because you're supposed to know you don't have to be afraid. Actually, Thelma... God loves you, and I don't think we're neighbors by accident. She said, I don't think we're neighbors by accident either. I think about you all the time. I feel like God put a grandson next to me. And I said, well, then, Thelma, I think so too. And I want you to know that God loves you, and I'm just so lucky to get to tell you. Not only does he love you, he wants a relationship with you. You don't have to lay over there in your house by yourself. He's with you. He wants to be with you. And how that can happen is through his son, Jesus, who came so you could have a way to God the Father through him, who we just talked to, wants to be in a relationship with you. She said, but how would that help me? Like, what if I die in the middle of the night all by myself? I said, Thelma, you'll never be by yourself. He'll always be with you. And it'll be like, it'd be like if, if I came over and I just said, hey, Thelma, let's go someplace. He'll, at some point, he'll just come over and... And, and he'll just say, well, why don't, why don't you come to my house? You can start that today. And over tuna fish sandwiches and soggy now potato chips, Thelma gave her life to Jesus. Because the single guy next door only began to understand that Jesus used meal tables and invited a little old lady to lunch few years ago, I got a letter because I've moved away from that state to live here in Colorado from a granddaughter, a great-granddaughter, actually, of Thelma. And there was some money in there that said, my grandmother told me that it was over a lunch that you shared with her, how to have a relationship with God. It meant the world to her. She's in heaven today, and she's told the rest of the family about it, and I wondered if you could buy a bench for your ministry where people could eat their lunches in honor of my grandma. I get so emotional every time I see people sit on that bench where they're just stopped. <clears throat> Sorry, I didn't mean to do this. Uh, up close intimacy, let's go back to our outline. Up-close intimacy with God and up-close arm's length life connections with others is what God's love in the middle looks like. 
The great news for you is you're God's plan A and there is no plan B. And you've already said you love to eat. So I'm going to say to you, you have great ministry potential. And it doesn't have to be anything fancy. A bottle of water or even a tuna fish sandwich will do. Lord, thank you for what you're helping us understand better. That the place that you employed and such a simple thing, a table, most of us are comfortable at a table, is underemployed by your people because we don't seem to get it, that it's not just our church potlucks, but it's sitting at tables with other people. The stories we love to read about you with Matthew and his friends over a table, or going to Zacchaeus' house to sit at a table with him, or sitting over non-bottled spring water with somebody else, where, where you trying to help us know it's not the potluck dinner at the synagogue. It's who is out there waiting and needing to share a popsicle with you. A child in the neighborhood who hasn't felt seen or loved or cared about. Or, or somebody who just could use a, an extra slowdown moment. Lord, there's a whole lot of people who think they're too messy and we would never want to do that. But your love poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit will enable us. And we're eager to live the adventurous and joyful life as kingdom labors up close to you and up close to others. And we thank you for the privilege. We thank you for a model to follow in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. All done. Almost time to eat. <laughs> so uh, if you guys would flip with me to page 21 in your journal notebook. We're going to just take a few minutes really quick and look at what it looks like to do uh, meal table ministry. So there on page 21, you'll take note uh, that it says, uh, just take a few minutes to brainstorm people in your life who like to eat, need someone who loves God in their lives, and you could invite over for a meal time. Um, and then just write their names below. Um, and you might not even know their name. Uh, maybe it's the barista at the coffee shop. Maybe it's the neighbor three three houses down, but I don't remember their name, maybe, you know, whatever. Uh, just write, write the description or their name right there in that box. And uh, you can always take some more time with this a little bit later. Uh, feel free to come back, um, fill in more names, and that will be great. Uh, flipping over to page 22, the next step is to prioritize. So out of the list of people that you wrote down, maybe you only have one or two right now, uh, but write, write a few of those names right here, people who you're going to prioritize 
for people who you feel like the Lord is asking you to prioritize having a meal with. The next step here uh, is to, I, I know that it can be hard to invite someone over to your house, or they might feel awkward, or you might feel awkward, so sometimes meeting on neutral territory is easiest. Uh, so maybe it's a coffee shop, maybe it's a, a lunch place, maybe it's a, a restaurant, a McDonald's, a, a, you know, a Chipotle, I love Chipotle. You know, may, maybe it's just Kidoba, that's the one I like, yeah. Anyway, so maybe it's one of those in the middle locations. Uh, maybe your neighbors are like my neighbors. They love to sit in their garage. It's a, I don't know why. They just love it. And uh, we, we have tons of great conversations with our neighbors in, gar- in the garage. And uh, I think it would be easy to take a meal over to their house and say, hey, we just want to share some food with you. What do you guys think? So maybe that would be some neutral territory. So uh, that in that box below that, Put the name of the person and maybe the meal location, whether it's your house or the garage or uh, some other location like a restaurant. All right. Next, uh, take some time right now to just go to the Lord with it. Say, hey, uh, maybe you got some nervousness about uh, potentially having a meal with them, or maybe you're worried about how they might react to an invitation, or um, maybe you're excited and you're eager for a particular topic of conversation to come up. Uh, Just take it to the Lord right now. Right. Amen. Uh, the rubber's about to hit the road. Uh, <laughs> we're going to invite you to invite them. Uh, so if you have your phone with you, and if you have their number, we I would encourage you to uh, quickly send them a text message, or uh, maybe you don't have, maybe you can't make a call, or maybe send them an email, or uh, right now, invite them uh, to have a meal with you. I know, it's scary. Right.
Absolutely. Any, uh, did everybody hear what Dwight said? Uh, he said, um, maybe it's just saying, hey, how does your schedule look like over the next few weeks? Um, and then you can work with them in conversation to, to get to the point of setting up coffee or a meal somewhere. And uh, if, if you don't know their number, if you don't have their email, or if you're waiting to make a phone call, uh, make a commitment to actually make that happen. Uh, I know how it is. You get excited when you come to things like this, and you're like, I'm actually going to do it this time, and it's, I'm, I'm actually going to do it. And then you walk out the doors, and life hits you in the face, and you're like, oop, I didn't do it. So uh, I encourage you, really commit to yourself if, if, if you don't have the number of the email right now to, to do that as soon as possible. And then as your meal time approaches, uh, consider just being in prayer, or I really encourage you to be in prayer. Ask the Lord, you know, Lord, help me to know, help me to know what love tells me what to do. Uh, help me to know what topics of conversation to have ready. Help me to know how to serve this person. Give me the wisdom. Um, open their heart to you. Uh, you can pray. Uh, and you might think about these questions. What, what questions will you ask while you're having a meal? Uh, how, much of your life, how much of their life story do you already know? How much uh, do you think they will be willing to share more? How can you show that, them that you love and care about them? And uh, how can you be a blessing to them in the same way that God has blessed you? So, Yes. Yeah. Yeah, get dietary restrictions if uh, you're making the food. <laughs> That's important. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, make something that they like. That's really good. Awesome. Well, we're going to go to lunch now. Um, we're going to have lunch at these tables in here, or if you would like, you can pop outside. We don't have any tables set up out there, but feel free if you want to get a little sunshine and stretch your legs. Um, but we want to encourage you. There's probably people in this room right now who you've not met, or you've met them once or twice, but only in passing, and you don't know very much about them. Uh, we want to encourage you to share your meal with a couple of people that you don't know. And I know that's uh, that can be challenging, but share your meal with a couple of people that you don't know. Uh, I know Vince doesn't know anybody, so someone be sure to invite Vince to their lunch table. Um, yeah, so does everybody good with that? Any questions? How's everybody feeling about the temperature in the room right now? Freezing? All right. Hot? Okay. Gotcha. All righty. Sounds good. <laughs> um, Right o I'm gonna pray for our I'm gonna pray for our food really quick and then the sandwiches are right there. Uh, what are the stacks, Taylor? They're all labeled, but they're all the same. Yep. Veggie, BLT, turkey, or ham. And uh, feel free to grab mayonnaise and mustard. There's chips, there's water. Um, feel free to grab whatever you would like. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for this food. Please bless it to our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen.